0: Hi, this is Sean Sipos. I play Adam Strange on Krypton, and you're listening to Neil Before Pod.
1: Neil Before Blog presents Neil Before Pod.
0: Hello, and welcome to Neil Before Pod, the podcast that doesn't shrink away from a conversation. We are here to discuss the latest MCU cinematic release, Ant Man and the Wasp Quantumania. I'm your host Craig, your very own rant man, and joining me is a mechanized organism designed only for complaining. It's Aaron. Do you
1: vary the quality of your puns based on the quality of the film as you see it? Do you think you do that? Or are you always on your pun A game every time?
0: It's always the best I can come up with. <laughs> just checking you can interpret that however you like if you think they suck then fine they suck if you think i've done a good job then i've done a good job but it's always the best i can do
1: okay that's fine i'm not the one to ask i've been anti-pun since we started so i'm exactly the wrong person you have to get that from your audience yeah he's still here well that's true actually i must love punishment
0: but in terms of punning angus is the best around in these parts anyway
1: did i get any points there by the way for punishment or not? Did that not work?
0: Yeah, you can have a couple of points. Why not? We'll start off being kind. A couple of
1: points. I want those. I don't want anybody to say I didn't join in or try.
0: Yeah. Anyway, Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania, the third in the Ant-Man trilogy, although... In the MCU, can you really call three films that feature one character named after that character a trilogy anymore because of how they bounce around? I suppose that's a question that we can tackle. But before we try that, what are your spoiler-free thoughts on this one? And what did you think of the prior Ant-Man films? I can't remember if we ascertained whether you saw Ant-Man and the Wasp yet.
1: This is a really difficult question because neither can I. I can't decide if I've seen the first opening half an hour of Ant-Man and the Wasp three times and convince myself I've therefore seen the film but actually not or if I have actually seen the film at some point I need to just skip to the 31st minute and keep watching because I've seen that (laughs) and playing the drums so many times that I just don't know anymore.
0: I don't think you've missed a terrible lot after that point to be fair it's not the most memorable of MCU entries it's fine but it doesn't stand out as running ahead of the pack
1: yeah, and man has never grabbed me from the start. I think I kind of liked the first film, but that was as far as it went. It wasn't so hilarious that I was rolling around the aisles, unable to control myself. And I don't remember the plot being so moving and so tragic that it was going to grab my heart and keep me there. It's one of those ones that flags as. Yeah, I think I was okay during that. Didn't ruin my day or anything, but it's not up there in my favourites at all. And potentially that's what contributed to me not seeing Ant-Man and the Wasp if I didn't. But there's no proof on that either way at the moment. So I'm coming into this film, as you indicate, not really because it's the third in a series of character films that I want to see, I came into this purely because I wanted to see how Phase 5 started, which we can talk about, obviously. There was like a three-part question there. I think I got what's your connection to previous Ant-Man, but I've forgotten what the rest were.
0: Basically, what your spoiler-free thoughts are on Quantumania?
1: Spoiler-free thoughts are that it was superior to at least half of Phase 4, if not more than that, which I am saying even though I didn't really like it. Well, it's a weird one because the first 30 minutes I found to be very promising and I went through those 30 minutes going, oh, this is phase five. It's different. I'm really going to be into this. And then you get your first scenes with Kang and Jonathan Majors in that was actually acting. And by that, I don't mean any form of slight on himself. I just meant He had enough script to act with, and he added to it. It was good enough that the actor, with a fair caliber by himself, was able to do something with it. And so I'm really hyped up when I see him in his flashback scenes. But after that, and I say half an hour because I don't quite know how long it is, but Around that point then when you just seen the flashback and then they're starting to get to it. Unfortunately from then, yeah, I started to pick up on, okay, that's a bit like a trope. Um, yeah, that's not as interesting as I would have liked it to be. And for me, it just sort of tailed off into those points whereby I wasn't interested. But I would say that my greatest criticism of that second three quarters is only that it was a bit dull. It wasn't interesting. It's still better for me than some of the Phase 4 films, because I was just so angry at the end of some of the Phase 4 films. We talk about this a lot, mostly because I want to. You don't want to talk about it as much as I do. But Multiverse of Madness, I think, is just insulting in its setup. It insults the three main characters. It insults the audience with them. I think even Black Widow, the character is completely changed from who she was in Some of the early stuff, she's not as clever as she was. She's not as capable as she was. And In both of them, the characters suffer from my favorite thing to hate, which is the plot force. The idea that the writers and the directors make the characters this way because the plot needs it, darling. And as soon as I can hear the plot needs it, darling, in my head, there's just something that flips, and I could really hold count at that point. So I think that's just lazy or arrogant
0: i'm not sure i've ever asked this but is the plot needs it, darling a quote from anyone or anything in particular you've said it a lot and i've never asked so i'm doing it now
1: i can't quite remember where it comes from but yes it is a quote from a film or a tv series that i will have seen more than two decades ago where somebody as a character who was talking about writing and script writing used it as a justification for why they were allowed to compromise on the characters that they were in turn writing. And it was at that point that I think I must have first hulked out. That was my first blast of gamma radiation that just sent me into orbit because it was being used by a writer to justify their own bad work. And it just drove me mad. And I've since learned that in some writing courses, it's taught as a good thing, as it's perfectly reasonable. And admittedly, that came from a friend of mine who's a bit of a playwright. It was in the writing courses for playwrights that I knew about it. I don't know if they say this sort of thing in script writing or not. But he just explained to me that, yeah, that is actually taught as a valid mechanism for telling stories. And that just sent me further into orbit, because it just feels like If you've got a story that doesn't fit what you're doing, keep the idea and use it as a separate story. You don't have to crowbar something in. You can, if you want, choose to write for the actual character. And it won't be the story you've got in your mind, but there's that element that I think of scriptwriting and directing as being a job. It's not a pure art form. If you want to write your own script, if you want to write your own film, then you can be as artistic and expressionistic as you want because it's yours. And if nobody wants to make it too bad, you can still be happy with that. But in the case of things whereby you're writing for an existing character set, I don't honestly believe you get to be purely artistic. If there's an existing character, then you should do the right thing and read their history and use it. If there's an existing plot line, then you should not just rewrite it like they pretty much said in Multiverse of Madness. I know you've come here to tell me off for horribly manipulating a whole town's worth of people. And the Sorcerer Supreme says, Nah, you're fine. We do that all the time. Don't worry about it. And you just want to know, was the writer or director so arrogant that they thought they didn't need to read the old plot? because how could it possibly be any good? Or even actually arrogant again the other way, where they just said, no, our story is so amazing. You'll love it. You don't need to remember any of the old way because I'm that good. And maybe it's not arrogance. Maybe it's an ignorance that they just carry on and do what they want without thinking about it but that's just as bad so i do appreciate there are many different ways to enjoy a film i do appreciate the multiverse of madness it's actually got well i assume it's got good horror elements in it i'm not the right person to judge horror at all i didn't find it but i just don't know so i could be wrong in that and it was certainly very pretty certainly something to look at so i can appreciate there are other angles to enjoy a film but the biggest transgression for me is always going to be plot based and i think to bring it back around to ant-man I never felt at any point they compromised any of the characters. They didn't use them enough in some cases. There are some characters that didn't get enough screen time, but I don't believe they were compromised. And I don't believe that they ignored on purpose or through ignorance any previous plot they built upon the previous. So I can summarize that again by saying, I didn't really enjoy Ant-Man, Quantumania after That first little section, I think it became a bit dull, but it didn't transgress in this way that is so important for me, like quite a lot of the phase four films do. So for me, it actually started phase five better, which is potentially controversial. And I thought that it's ending snippets were very promising and hopefully quite intelligent because they didn't explain to the audience. So when we get to the ending, I can talk about that a bit more. But it it did have these little points in it that were actually good, which I could never say about some of the Phase 4 betrayals that I felt happened.
0: So you think this is a better start to Phase 5 than WandaVision was to Phase 4? Interesting.
1: I think that's a bit of a... Different argument because I don't know that I disliked One Division. The end of One Division, horrendous, but the start of One Division was much more interesting to me than Quantumania was because they really committed to that soap opera stuff. So I won't say that I want to compare the firsts. I would like to compare the average. Now, an average of one film isn't really a good average, but it was better than the average offering of Phase 4, yes.
0: So since you didn't like much of Phase 4, it's an ant-sized barrier to clear.
1: I mean, it's, yeah, it's It's not going to be much of a challenge. I can't say that.
0: I tried to look up your Because the Plot Needs It, Darling quote, and I found no results. All it did was give me results for Don't Worry, Darling, the Lawrence Pugh film. So maybe that will be the next in the comma-darling universe. The <laughs> plot force needs it, comma-darling. Maybe. But when you were talking about the fact that Plot needs to happen and you're supposed to forget about everything that happened previously in order to facilitate that. It reminded me of a quote, and I had to look up who said it, because I couldn't remember who it was. But it was, if you have a third act problem, you actually have a first act problem. And it was a filmmaker called Billy Wilder. Okay. He's dead now, but he was an Austrian-American filmmaker with a career spanning five decades. But that was one quote that was attributed to him, the idea that if there's something wrong in your third act, you need to go back to your first act. So if you need something to happen in your third act, you have to find a way to make it believable that you can get there in the first act. And yeah, that seems to make sense to me. Yeah, Just a logical progression of character decisions that inform plot and so on, which does seem to be, at least for some, a kind of lost art in a lot of ways. It's the... Why did they do this? So that this could happen.
1: Yeah, it did bother me. The writer of... I keep getting me back to uh, Multiverse of Madness, but to be fair, I felt really sorry for the writer of Multiverse of Madness because when I first started seeing quotes taken out of context for him, it made him look like a total idiot. But then if you actually listen to the context in which he's saying certain things. You feel really sorry for him. Now, one of his quotes was something like, I had no idea what to do with the second act. And you're thinking, what? How can you have written the first act and the third act and not have any idea what goes on in the second act? It's not just the part of a sandwich where you're thinking, well, I know I want bread. What will I put in the middle? It just sounds like (laughs) just drivel. But then when you hear what they told him to do, see that film you've written? We don't like that. Can you write another film? I've only got two weeks. Mm, yeah, we know. And also, in that two weeks, we'd like you to include this, 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 and this. I don't know that they really go together very well. I know, but that's what we want. Make it happen.
0: We've got some cameos, but we don't know who they are yet. It's so write a scene that could have anybody in it.
1: And then the director comes along and starts making changes and encouraging this, that, and the other at the same time. And you're thinking, dear God, the poor guy was given two weeks, and now at one week out. Oh, and even at the <laughs> deadline, you're still coming in asking for changes. The poor guy was screwed. That's the thing I think really bothers me. We're all used to really taking the mickey out of producers and saying they don't know what they're doing. That's become a cliche, but I really felt for this poor guy when even the director, who is known to be a good director, even that director that you can therefore assume knows what he's talking about, was asking for certain changes. There's no hope. I feel for you because you just had no chance. of A good film is the wrong word. I need to make sure I'm not saying that. You had no chance of writing a good script.
0: Yeah, and that's part of the problem When it comes to this filmmaking by committee thing That plagues basically any franchise you can think of The studio heads want stuff in They react to what test audiences might think Where the test audiences don't always get it right Look at the I Am Legend alternate ending fiasco For a great example of that Test audiences hated the alternate ending So they filmed this one that was rubbish And didn't make any sense And then the film comes out And everyone sees the alternate ending and thinks That's way better, why didn't you leave that in? Yeah So much so that the sequel is ignoring the original ending and using the alternate one when that comes out. So that's that's the thing that's happening. But to look back to opinions on these films, the first Ant-Man film I really enjoyed, and I think it was one of those films that was almost doomed before it started because there was a heavy controversy around Edgar Wright leaving the project because... He just couldn't work with Marvel, and it'll probably be decades before we find out what the truth of that is, yeah. or a version of the truth of it is, but I think a lot of people jumped on it, and it's like, oh, they asked him to do connections to the shared universe, and he said no, and then that was it. Yeah. Let's stand up for real filmmakers instead of the studio crap, and I think it might have been that he got asked to say, do the Falcon scene, the scene where Scott fights Falcon, and he said no. You can see that happening, and it's yeah. one of those... If you're wanting to make a film in this franchise framework, you have to be willing to work with your bosses and negotiate and make changes and add things yeah. and take things out. I think that anybody's paying you to do something, you have to...
1: Absolutely. It's not your film you've been hired to do a job. Yeah, I totally see that.
0: At the same time, Edgar Wright would probably have enough clout to put his own stamp on certain things. Certain MCU films, you feel the studio hand more than others. For example, James Gunn. I don't think you necessarily feel the hands of the studio closing around his throat when he's making Guardians. It feels cohesive yeah. enough to think that he's getting to do broadly what he wants. Obviously, there will be stuff that he has to do, but I think he's maybe a bit better at just working with them than some others are and then you get some other directors that are hired guns who are just, you're going to direct this film do the talkie scenes, we'll do the action stuff that was the famous thing with the first director considered for Black Widow, she was told you don't have to worry about the action scenes we'll handle those and her response was why would I want to make a Black Widow film and not direct the action sequences? I forget the name of this director but that's what she said and it's it's a valid point but it's the idea of yeah we're making this film and we have a kind of an idea of how we're going to make it you're just in there to Get the best performance out of the actors or put the camera in the middle of the room or do whatever you want to do with the camera in these talkie scenes. But when it comes to their falling fortress out of the sky stuff, yeah. that's all us. I think that's become more apparent as it's went on. If you look at the early days of the MCU, your first Iron Man, even Iron, well, Iron Man 2 has a lot of studio nonsense surrounding it. But th- those films, they feel a bit more owned by who's making them. And then you get into the post-Avengers Disney era and you start to see it all kind of merging into a bit of a, A paste is an ungenerous term, but it kind of is. There's a lot less of an identity to individual entries than there used to be.
1: Yeah, which they could have broken out of with the TV series, but still got pulled back into.
0: And the thing is, they could be doing that. They could be doing something more experimental because they had a point where people would just watch Marvel films.
1: Mm.
0: They would just go see them. Doesn't matter what they were. And that's why Guardians was successful, because it had the Marvel logo on it. Mm. They could apply that to anything. You could be doing more interesting things here. Anyway, the first Ant-Man, they brought in Peyton Reed. He did a reasonable job, and I actually think the third act action sequence does a really good job of lampooning these city destroying, property damaging action sequences in the third act of all these films. You make them really small, and it happens in a little girl's bedroom, so the damages <sighs> he makes a bit of a mess, but it's framed like it's huge stakes and lots of explosions and stuff. They would cut away, and you would see really small stuff happening, so it was really clever in that way. The heist thing, when it Was being a heist film, that was something a bit different. It does devolve into Hero Punchy's villain that has the same abilities as Hero Thing in the end. But the heist stuff was cool. Ant-Man and the Wasp is pretty forgettable. I think I've only seen it twice, and I can't really remember too much of it. It's fine. It's sort of bland and inoffensive. It suffers greatly in terms of its placement, and it comes in between Infinity War and Endgame. So at that point, no one really cares about what Ant-Man's doing because they want to see what happens next with Endgame.
1: And it couldn't change anything big because of that, yeah.
0: Yeah, and it's set before Infinity War as well. So, in theory, it could have just came out before. But anyway, it is what it is. And this one, I'm like you, yeah, I liked the first act or so, the whole setup sequence, where it does feel like an Ant Man film broadly. You're reintroduced to Scott, what he's up to, you're reintroduced to the characters, etc. And then it sort of falls off a cliff after that. Once the Quantum Realm stuff really kicks in, it just starts to get a bit forgettable as it goes on, and we'll get into it more as we go, but it annoys me more than it probably should, and I think I have a reason for that, that we'll get into as we go. It's not that it doesn't do anything good, but there's a lot wrong with it, I'll say that, and I think that's all we can really say without getting into spoilers, so should we shrink into the spoiler realm? We should, yes. We'll come back and it's ten years later and... Not necessarily. (laughs) Yeah, we'll talk about it. Well, let's do the Shrinking. Okay, we're in the spoiler realm. Great, here it looks about the same as the non-spoiler realm, but it's more spoilery. We've got a bit of a plot here, and I put the plot as Journey to the Centre of the Quantum Realm, because I do think that maybe at some point through the development of this film, Marvel or someone at Marvel wanted to do our Journey to the Centre of the Earth... As in, we're whisking some characters off to a strange land where stuff looks really weird and they have to get out of it, but they have a great adventure along the way. And the reasons for them being in the quantum realm, it's just an accident where it happens, fair enough, and they get up to stuff while they're there. Did you feel this Journey to the Centre of the Earth vibe even early on?
1: I didn't. Not that I thought that it wasn't there. My vibe was so taken by what I'd seen in Guardians or Thor 3 where they're on the planet where he fights the Hulk. I can't even remember what that planet's called now. You've told me a load of time. Sakaar. Sakaar. I got that vibe. They wanted to bring you back to the alien and show you that off Earth, it's massively multicultural. There's a whole civilization set up. And actually, Earth is a bit of a backwater because it's the only planet we've seen where people haven't come off to get involved in the bigger universe. And it turns out then that the bigger universe is also the smaller universe as well. You can go in both directions. I do see what you're saying, though. It's not that I can't see that in retrospect. I can. And it does make me wonder then, hearing you say that, was that the original idea before someone turned around and said, by the way, you're the start of phase five now, so you have to launch our plot. And maybe the original script was nothing to do with that. The original script was, hang on a minute, in both times previous, we've just got to do our own thing. So we can just assume for our third film, we'll get to do our own thing as well it might have been rather a rude awakening when someone said actually you're a massive linchpin film now so this idea of just going down into the quantum realm and being a standalone adventure suddenly had to get a lot more important I don't know but it could be
0: well we'll say that it's going to be the linchpin when it actually really isn't which we'll definitely get to but I did enjoy all that stuff when they get there there's weird creatures flying around and there's all that uncertainty and they're surrounded by these strange living plants and all that stuff as To plants that aren't living. You know what I mean? These weirdly behaving plants, I guess, is the way to put it. And then when they get to civilization, as you say, it's no different really to anything we've seen in Guardians or Thor. These alien bazaars they end up in always look the same, which is a bit of an issue because you'd think this would be a a set dresser's dream. We get to build this world, at least in this limited setting, but then you see them and could put a screenshot of all three and then try and get someone to tell the difference or tell you which one it's from, and they wouldn't be able to, which suggests that there's a problem making a strong identity to any of them. But certainly we're stuck here, don't know where we are, don't know what any of the stuff surrounding us is. I was interested at that point, and like we both said, the first act were pretty well on board because it, it seemed like it was going to be giving us something interesting, but then it gets consumed by what it gets consumed by.
1: I think you're right with the set director's dream, but I take it even further than say even the director because one of the big things that you've got here to make it different, they did use at the start where you get the alien landscape and they are effectively outside. They're in a wilderness and they don't do anything with that and they don't bring that wilderness inside. So when they go into the bazaar, when they go into the drinking area, the club, as you say, then they just make it like a space club, whereas you'd be expecting to see those alien plants really being defining. Maybe they are, in fact, the counter. Maybe they are, in fact, the drink supplier. So they don't have to pull a lever to get the beer pulled. They actually just push some sort of mushroom thing, or they send a little jellyfish up that interacts with the plant and then that plant rains down the water or the alcohol or whatever it is. So they bring that outside wilderness inside and point out that the entire world is made from it. Yes, it could have been the director, but I think at that point I'm expecting the overall director to come in and say what their vision is and say they want more because Disney does this sort of thing reasonably well. Pixar does this thing really stupidly well. There's plenty of examples to follow where they create a new universe. So it's something that you could know by now you don't even have to break ground to do it and they just sort of forgot or didn't mean to or did it for
0: a little while and then forgot it
1: that's actually the thing because even when you think about the rebel village they have some weird stuff. It turns out their houses are actually creatures and they're alive. Okay, good. Yeah, let's do more of that. Let's bring that on. What else are they having to do? What are they having to sit on? What are they having to dance around? Because they don't have fire down here because it's the quantum realm so there can't be flame. There's got to be something else. Right, how do they get plasma? Where's the light coming from? What are they dressed in? What's their equivalent of cloth? Because they can't have this, that and the other. And it feels like all of those things quickly just get forgotten. They put the gear the house is alive and then you don't really see it elsewhere you see it quite a lot in the different races the different species i should say but because we've already seen that in space it doesn't stand out anymore whereas they had the opportunity to really say how does a quantum realm work go for it so they put little bits in but then they just don't commit at all anywhere
0: yeah the two speed through a lot of this stuff. I think at one point Janet talks about there are loads of universes within universes and really small orbiting this one and whatever. So this quantum realm they're in isn't the only quantum realm. There's loads of offshoot universes that could have ended up in and they just happen to end up here. But one thing I was wondering, because you do see such a variety of species... Is, is the quantum realm made up of sort of flotsam and jetsam that just winds up there through various means by accident or whatever? Or are there people native to it or is it a combination of both? And obviously in space you get around that easily. All these people look different because they're from different planets. Fine. But in this, I feel like you need a bit more just in terms of how it all works because obviously our characters are stuck there. They ended up there by accident. Kang was exiled there. So he ended up there from his point of view by accident. What about everybody else? Or the generations upon generations of people that became native to the quantum realm because their ancestors got stuck there from the big worlds?
1: I think this comes back to something we've potentially said about almost all of the Marvel films, which is you can always see the beginnings of. One, two, potentially even three ideas, and none of them are committed to. They take something that's cool, ram it together with something else that's cool, ram it together with something else that's cool, and you want to say, okay, yes, they all could have been cool if you'd committed to any one of them. So you've got your journey to the center of the Earth idea. There's one plot that could have been turned into a whole film by itself. The other film that they rammed into it was a rebellion against an overlord, sort of like a Robin Hood story, or they could have had an evil colonizer. There's so many different ways of of using that, but there's your other story. And then, of course, you've got your standard Marvel plot, how are you going to connect this into everything else, right? So we've got Janet and Kang's story together. So you've got these three ideas fighting for dominance. And because you've got three none of them are going to get dominance by themselves. And so none of them are fully realized. You didn't get your journey to the center of the earth idea because we just had to spend so much time with Kang. We didn't get the rebellion going on because we had to spend so much time wandering about with their backstories and exposition about Kang and so on. So they're all failing. And I do wonder if we haven't said that with quite a lot of Marvel films. Pick one. And I would have loved it, but you didn't. I think we have said that a lot, haven't we?
0: Yeah, well, we said that about Moon Knight. You've crammed down everything yeah. about Moon Knight into one season when one idea would have been enough. Yeah. And I'm sure we said it about other Marvel films as well.
1: Oh, well, yeah. We didn't even really get an explanation of the thing that you've said as well. There must be several levels because we know that time works differently down here, except it doesn't on the level they conveniently ended up at, whereas it must work differently elsewhere so you can go up mm-hmm. and down.
0: There's one line that explains they're in sync with their own world for convenience purposes.
1: Except they weren't previously or something or other
0: obviously they go through different layers and previous things because in endgame they enter the quantum realm then exit it at an earlier point in time for their time heist thing
1: we've gotten used to that in marvel where they don't want it to be hard sci-fi and i think you have to make a piece of that if you can't deal with soft sci-fi then you can't watch marvel that you're just not going to get that but nonetheless i still expect a setup to have rules. I still expect you to at least tell me what my new world order is because I have that problem we've talked about, even though this is going to be another episode out of time. In the last podcast we recorded that isn't out yet, they spoke about the trouble of fantasy being unbelievable. Or is that the January news? Anyway, who cares? At some point, I either have or will say that fantasy has trouble with being difficult to suspend your disbelief because it's so different to the real world. And it ends up being farcical. And here they have this same problem. You're going to go to an alien world. Doesn't matter whether it's up, down, sideways, dimensional, or otherwise. And we have to find it believable realistic we have to be able to connect to it and so to do that I need my rules what's true down here what's possible what's not possible tell me what shouldn't be possible so I can actually be surprised when somebody manages to do it rather than just go sure why not don't need to believe anything you're saying so I don't think they give us any of those rules other than you say this one line description of don't look this way and to be honest I think that's quite a good description of a lot of this. It's unfortunately where it connects back into phase four for me. I could have summarized phase four with the phrase, don't look at the man behind the curtain. And (laughs) that's what you need to do to enjoy some of the physical spectacle, the light show. Just watch it for what it is and don't try and understand or see behind it. And whereas I think I'm happy to have a soft science that they don't need to explain it all, that don't look behind the curtain takes it too far. You need to give me something. So that's a shame because they don't.
0: Yeah. And I do think it's in service of making sure there are very few consequences of this film, really. If they were stuck on a different temporal plane and would arrive back years later, every second is wasting days or whatever, that gives you some stakes to play with. But if it's, nah, when we get back, we'll have been gone as long as we've been gone down here. So it's fine. It reduces it a little bit. The
1: thing of it is, That's the part of the film that I did like, because the idea of consequence is potentially in there. Now, I don't know, because uncharacteristically for a latter-day Marvel film, they didn't do exposition over their final scene. They strangely let you watch it play out. And that's just so odd after you've been through so much exposition in lots of films previously, and even in this own film as exposition, to then suddenly get all these implications in that final walk down Happy Street to where he's reliving his story that he wrote in his book. There's all these subtle indications that he's either altered the timeline or he's in a different dimension or potentially it's a dream and Kang tricked him and he's in a little bubble somewhere for Kang's own purposes. So it's kind of odd. It's another one that makes you think, is this another idea that was brought out and layered onto the rest? Maybe the entire film was going to be this trippy, is this real affair but somebody said yeah that's a good idea but if you could just contain that to the last five minutes because we've got this, this, this and this you need to get in there and again potentially screw themselves right from the start but the ending, that final ending to me is one of the most intriguing things about the whole film and it's possible, not guaranteed no exposition, it's possible that this really does set up phase five because unbeknownst to everybody Ant-Man has completely screwed the timeline or letting Kang do something has allowed Kang to completely screw the timeline and we're only going to see proper evidence of that in subsequent films.
0: Maybe, yeah. I hadn't really thought about that final scene being a dream or something. I thought they were just giving you a kitschy happy ending, that saccharine happy ending that fits the tone of your general Ant-Man film. It's weird that you're bookended by this start that feels like you're going into an Ant-Man film a lot like the other two. Yeah. And then you get this weird thing in the middle, or for most of the rest of it. And then the final scene is essentially just, we're back to this again. He's back to normal. And I just don't feel like anybody was meaningfully changed by any of this. And I also feel like that about a lot of Marvel things, we can talk about it, but the idea of conflict and disagreements and stuff has sort of been phased out of these things.
1: Well, it hasn't. That's what gives me some hope for phase five then, because even though they might have done some weird stuff in the middle, that ending... When you really start to look at it, and obviously I've only seen this once, I actually am trying to remember this. You might have to correct me on this because I can't quite show it all, but there's things like his graffiti is on the walls and the shopkeeper suddenly knows that he is really Ant-Man. And sometimes things like the graffiti on the walls is for a character that's dead so you, first of all, you've got this implication that, oh, was he supposed to have died in this universe that he's come back to? I saw somewhere, or oh no, was somebody else telling me this at work? I can't remember. I came across it somewhere else where somebody said, did you see that all the people walking down beside him were just utterly shocked or horrified by what they saw as if he wasn't supposed to be there and i thought no i didn't see that
0: i didn't click that either
1: But that's quite interesting because i saw the graffiti on the wall that he walked past and yeah that does mesh up maybe he is supposed to be dead in this timeline but it doesn't quite work because then the shopkeeper knows who he is suddenly either way it's supposed to be happy but it gets quite creepy because he goes in and suddenly this guy knows who he is And you're thinking, what? No, 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 that's not right. He's not famously done anything. He was in the quantum realm. Nobody knows anything different. This universe has changed and you start to add up all these little things. And this, whoever it was that was telling me this, I wish I could credit you. I apologize. Next time I see you at work, I'll have to remember who you are and tell you. But he also said that, did you see that when he's walking down the street that Kang's colors are everywhere on the first time he walks down the street i assume kang's colors aren't anywhere but the second time at the end he's walking down the street everything is i've no idea purple or green i was never going to see it anyway because i'm colorblind i just don't look at colors at all so that one was always going to go by me but this guy said no if you watch it it's like the street of kang which thing "Oh right so it's not an alternate universe he's definitely trapped somewhere and it wasn't kang that fell into that sphere of energy it was actually scott that did or something because we're all going oh my god he got out so easily he really escaped when he shouldn't have done and now i'm thinking no he didn't he's still in there or somewhere else horrible now as i say you don't get this in exposition and you're expecting to get it in exposition now and all of a sudden there's this potentially really intelligent ending that is going to set up the entirety of phase five and it's hidden behind this Crazy, slightly dull nothing. So you're not even there for it. But I can see us looking back on this going, oh my God, so much was in that last scene. I'm not promising it is. Please don't quote me on this. It might just be totally making it up. Like I said, with my vision, I can't even tell you that it was the colours of Kang reliably. But I think it could be.
0: I never noticed that, but I think both times I saw it, I checked out a little bit by that point. That's part of the problem, yeah. In theory, it's quite interesting. And it could be one of those things that by the time we get further into phase five and it's, revealed that that's not the case it'd be one of those examples of oh god there's fan theories that are better than what they're coming up with for this <laughs> wouldn't be the first time yeah
1: or the next director comes along and does a multiverse of madness and say see all that plot with that character I know better than that and I'm just going to ignore it and that will infuriate me if they actually say that I will have to go and find that person and set fire to them
0: quite extreme but okay
1: justified at this point just <laughs>
0: So let's talk a bit about Scott then. He's one of our title characters. The other title character may not be deserving of being a title character in terms of the contribution to the film, but we'll talk about it. So he starts off, he's doing his little monologue. Life seems pretty sweet for Scott Lang. His money's no good anywhere. He's going for dinner with Jimmy Woo and he's paying because he has money now because he's sold a best-selling book and all that good stuff. I wonder if him and Jimmy Wu talk about one division, because, remember, he was there. Oh. So he's written his book, he's embraced his celebrity, he's starting to believe the hype that surrounds him, even though the coffee shop owner thinks he's Spider-Man and so on. The suggestion is that he's maybe just gotten a bit carried away with himself and he's lost what made him a hero and the irony is his book's about looking out for the little guy and he's forgotten how to look out for the little guy. As his daughter constantly reminds him about. What did you think of this as a setup? The idea of he's a bit of an arrogant celebrity and he needs to learn how to be a hero again. I think that's a perfectly reasonable setup, but I don't feel like they really did an awful lot with
1: it. I agree with you that I enjoyed that setup because he's always been somebody shown to be out of his depth. He really tried to keep up with the rest of the Avengers, but he's always been somebody who has said, first thing we should do is call the Avengers are an Avenger? No, I'm not an Avenger. I would never be an Avenger. I'm just a normal guy. And how am I going to get past this inferiority complex, this, what do they call it? Imposter syndrome? Yeah. He could even have a bit of that. He's never going to feel comfortable. So how is he going to get by in life? Well, actually, he's going to write a book. He's going to be this celebrity in this modern world. That made a lot of sense to me. And I did like it as a setup, especially when his daughter comes out. Cassie says, I'm 18, I'm sassy, and I'm an activist. And it's the first time I've ever seen a sassy young female character not be annoying because she actually had (laughs) a good purpose and she didn't really throw it in the audience's face. She threw it in her father's face and that makes her a teenager. So for the first time, I thought, yeah, I actually like the dynamic they've set up here that includes the sassy young girl because they've balanced it between these two characters. But again, I come back to, if they really wanted to go with that, then they needed the Quantum Realm to be entirely that one storyline of the Rebellion and needed to cut the other two potential storylines out of it entirely. Because the only time you meet the leader of the Rebellion is to defeat leader at the end. So Kang does not appear. He's really just a plot point for them to resolve at the end. At that point he's just this Sheriff of Nottingham that you bring down. He can't have that bit. They can't have the journey to the centre of the earth exploration because they need to make sure it's about activism and the rebellion right from the start. So they set up the rebellion storyline and you said you didn't see it. And I would say the reason you didn't see it was because we had to see Journey of the Centre of the Earth and we had to see Kang and they couldn't commit to it. So, yes, they set it up, but they did not have anywhere near enough time to focus on it and make it more than an opening paint job.
0: They're weirdly intermittent with the uprising story because it disappears for long chunks and then it reappears, and it it reappears in a big way at the end because all the people have come together to overthrow Kang. How great is this? And, And Cassie's the one that marshaled them for some reason because they're all going to listen to her. Most of them don't know who she is.
1: Well, the stupid thing about that is it could have been,
0: because if they'd have made
1: the entire film about that, then she can actually learn, as Scott can, a lesson. She can actually take her activism and learn the realism that her father knows. You don't start a rebellion without expecting to see a lot of people you like get horribly killed. And so she has to balance her enthusiasm with the reality of what it means to be an activist, there is going to be a cost. When she comes to the end in the third act then, her big speech, which ended up being, don't be a dick, or whatever else he ended up saying, I can't even remember her other big speech, because it was just (laughs) nothing. But that big speech at the end is pretty much her explaining to you the lessons that she has learned, and she gives it back to you in a rising speech that actually does lift the crowd, because they'd previously lost hope. Maybe she's even looking at Scott at this point because he had become so realistic. He'd forgotten how to be a hero. He didn't feel he could be a hero. Maybe she's even talking directly to him with some of the sentences where she's giving him the pickup. He needs to be an Avenger again. That whole setup, the whole rebellion is just gold for setting what you're talking about. If you've got an Act 3 problem, you've not done it properly in Act 1. They set up an Act One rebellion plotline. And then they did the climax of it. They said, Right, we've got a rebellion. So in Act Three, we'll give you the big speech and the reversal and the people charge. And they even give you a death. There's a bit of a cost. But it, because it's just these little tick boxes at the end, they haven't built on it. They haven't worked on it. And as you say it vanishes in Act Two. It can't vanish in Act Two because that's where she learns everything she needs to to give the speech in act three so massive setup totally unused and then at the end because of it not justified
0: and they really heavy-handed with some of it as well because you have that conversation that they have early on where scott's like you know i saved the world right you know it was because of me the avengers came up with this plan that ended up bringing everybody back from being dust and she's basically like yeah but what have you done lately is what he's done not Good enough, does he have to constantly be trying to top that? And it's the idea of, I guess, picking your battles because she gets arrested for... She's trying to help some homeless people that have set up tents in a park or something. They were displaced because of the blip. It's another example of, oh, here's an interesting consequence of the blip that we're not going to get to see much of. (laughs) Yeah. It just keeps coming up. It keeps getting briefly mentioned. Every now and again, someone will reference the fact that half of all life was missing for five years. And... It doesn't really come to anything.
1: The thing of it is, I didn't mind it being heavy-handed from her precisely because she is 18. She is young and idealistic and has that energy, untempered by the experience that tells you it's not that easy. You are that sort of person when you're 18. I don't understand why we can't all just get together and fix this. Yeah, no, because you're 18 and you've not seen all the complications out there. So the idea that her dad has done one good thing and then stopped does to me seem like something that could upset an 18 year old and they've not actually sat down and had a big philosophical discussion as father and daughter because who does but that's what they need to do they need to talk it out or they need to go on an adventure where they learn it so I thought that was actually perfectly reasonable from an 18 year old if it had come from hope then no I wouldn't have thought that was a good thing at all because She's grown up. But from Cassie, I demand more. I want to be an activist 24-7. That's not going to feed you. That's not going to clothe you. That's not going to put a roof over your head. But I want to. You know, she's not got past that. It didn't bother me at all. What bothered me was, if she is going to be that person, then let's see it. Let's see her have her big comeuppance in Act 2, where she pushes for activism constantly and gets three people killed because of it. Give her that life lesson. And then you get the payoff. I don't think it would have been so bothersome to you if, as you say, there'd have been some payoffs here.
0: Yeah, and there's the implication that she's coasting by on her privilege as well because her dad is a rich guy. No idea what her mum does. She's not even in this film. She's in the other two, but she's not here at all. But her dad's girlfriend is a CEO of a billions-of-dollar company. Yes. She's not wondering where her next meal is coming from or anything like that. So she doesn't really understand what the people sleeping in tents in a park are going through. She's acting like she does. And in fairness, her heart's in the right place because she thinks I need to help these people. But she's probably not helping them in the most practical ways because she's getting arrested and shrinking police cars and all this nonsense. And yeah, a lesson about how better to fight against an unjust system should in theory be something that she learns. But she doesn't. And yeah, a practical lesson in the quantum realm where she has all that privilege removed, where she is one of the people sleeping in tents in a park because she's been displaced in the way that these people that she doesn't really relate to have. And there you have it. There's her arc. Yeah, totally. And then Scott's arc is, yeah, maybe I have taken my foot off the pedal a little bit. Maybe I have just been coasting by on the prestige of being the Avenger that came up with the helped come up with a plan that saved the world and I'm doing my book readings and everybody loves me and people are dressed as Ant-Man and all this great stuff. From his point of view, it's yeah, I've done my job and now I can enjoy it a little bit and you can see how he gets there mentality-wise. It's almost like I said, forgotten how to be a hero. It's him relearning those lessons that he learned before about standing up for the little guy, in effect.
1: Well, potentially as well even getting past the imposter syndrome where because he's now down in the quantum realm and he's the one with the powers and there is no iron man there is no captain america there is no black widow there is no hulk blah 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 list them all he's the one that has to do it so at the end of it he could actually believe that it's not that he remembers how to do it but he actually believes in himself and it comes through the inspiration that he gets from seeing his daughter and he takes that on board so he starts out with the realism or the fear or both and defeats both of those problems. He's got a perfect arc right there, especially because we saw in one of the trailers one of the best lines that you're going to see. I've seen it before in, perversely, Babylon 5, but nonetheless, it doesn't make it bad just because it's reused. If done well, I don't have to win. We both just have to lose. That could have been one of the most moving, meaningful parts of that whole film because he is going to be the hero. He does believe in himself, And he goes for the ultimate sacrifice. And we didn't need to see him die. Him being trapped down there is perfectly good loss. He becomes a prisoner of Kang is a perfectly good loss for that film. And I think there's a possibility that we did see that hinted at this ending that I talked about, where he's in an alternate dimension or something. But because there's this hidden and could be intelligently hidden ending, we don't get the reveal and therefore we don't get the arc but i don't think we'd have got it anyway because they didn't commit to the rebellion as i say they put it aside for too long
0: you almost have to give him his version of a captain america speech because he obviously idolizes captain america and there's a bit in endgame where steve gives his speech and rocket says he's really good at that and he's like yeah right And he's got the wide-eyed hero worship in his eyes and things like that
1: why not give him that because a rebellion story is something that almost calls for a big speech
0: great bring it in i suppose you can't have him and cassie both delivering the big speeches someone has to do it and someone has to not do it otherwise it's just people giving righteous speeches for two hours
1: well they've both got a potential arc there that would have been excellent and either one of them could have had the speech i quite like giving cassie the speech because then she can be the daughter that inspires her father and he just has to give her the information to form the speech, so they both get to provide something to each other. So I think I would have given the speech to Cassie, but it wouldn't matter either way. Both of them could have done it. Amusingly, neither of them did. What are you going
0: to do? <laughs> We keep doing this on Marvel Podcasts. We keep coming up with plots for films that we didn't see and would have quite liked to see. During the Spider-Man No Way Home one, Chris and I came up with a pitch for a Spider-Man film about Peter Parker dealing with his identity being revealed to the world. It's just two hours of that. Yeah. That's a film in itself. And here we have a uprising in the quantum realm that the Langs have to stop. And yeah, that's perfectly reasonable for a film.
1: I think that's inevitable, though, just because I'm pretty sure we do constantly say this feels like it's three things mashed together. Yeah. I think, therefore, it's inevitable that we're going to be able to say each time we liked the ideas And we wanted to see those ideas play out because you have three ideas and none of them play out. You're almost begging your audience to say that bit would have been good. I don't know if that's how they do it. It'd be interesting to know if it's in the writer's room, three ideas are purposefully mashed together, or if you're seeing the evolution of a script that had one of the ideas and then the producers come along and say, I want this idea in. And then the director comes along and says, well, my directorial style is this, so can you put that in? And all of a sudden, the writers are left with three. And they probably don't want to get rid of their original idea, because that was theirs. But they have to fit the other two in. I don't
0: know. I'd love to know. Yeah, And in terms of the uprising idea, I think you suggested, after we saw it in the cinema, that Kang isn't there, he's gone, he left a while ago, and he's left someone in charge, and that's who they're overthrowing.
1: See, that would be fine, because then you can have him as the villain later on, because he is definitely the face of evil, but his lieutenant is the one carrying out the everyday evil that you need in order to keep people suppressed. Again, another perfectly valid way of introducing Kang without having him in a fight where you have to say, how can we have the heroes win, but we can't have Kang lose? Because you've written yourself into a corner straight away there. So yeah, he's always there as the big bad evil, but no, he's a boss monster on a much higher level, and you're nowhere near that yet.
0: Modox may be your film antagonist, in effect. Yeah,
1: I mean, if he hadn't have been a bit rubbish, as they did him,
0: a better Modoc, yes.
1: A better Murdoch would have been a perfectly good villain for them to fight and defeat, because you can defeat a lieutenant very happily. So yeah, I would have had the villain as Murdoch, but a better villain.
0: Yeah, definitely. So there we have our activism film that we didn't get. But I did like Cassie as a character when she actually got to be a character, which wasn't very often. She was mostly just a plot or well expo- oh, Not expo- she doesn't really expose it that much. She's mostly just a plot delivery machine. She exists to kind of propel things in a certain direction and say certain things catherine newton is very good in the role but she's very good in most roles anything i've seen her in she was castiel's vessels daughter in supernatural Oh god yeah <laughs> i don't know how young she would have been when she started doing that but she was going to be one of the leads of the spin-off that never happened right. the wayward sisters one and she's been in all sorts of other stuff that i've seen detective pikachu which i know you haven't seen but she's in that girl There's actually one line that really stood out to me that Cassie has. It's around the whole she cares about people, she wants to help people thing, where she says to Scott, just because it's not happening to you doesn't mean it's not happening. And I think that's a really punchy line, especially in the world the film comes out in because of everything that's going on at the moment where people are really struggling in terms of paying their energy bills or buying food and things like that. And people ignore it because it's just not happening to them. Yeah. And there's always been a common problem, the idea of there's all the suffering that's going on over there, but I'm not over there, so I'm fine. Yeah, It's just a really well-delivered line. It's one of those, if I could bottle that line delivery.
1: It would have given you more to do with your activism. It would have yeah, made it a bigger plot point. So you're right. She, As many people are not used well enough in the plot.
0: And that's ultimately the thesis of her conflict with scott because she recognizes that things are happening to people and all he wants to do is get out and so i leave all this behind and leave we're not supposed to be here it's not our problem that's his stance and it's sort of a disagreement but they don't really explore it to any great detail it's just something that they occasionally not even argue about there was someone on twitter that did a thread about this is a phenomenon in genre fiction in general the idea that it seems that the people making it are so afraid of online backlash that they don't allow their characters to actually be characters and have positions on stuff. They specifically referenced it in terms of this film and in Star Trek Picard as well, where characters will maybe have a brief argument and then five minutes later they're fine, whereas it could have been a fundamental difference of opinion that could have defined their relationship for a while. It made me think about how often I see that, how often I see that, well, this looks like it could go somewhere. And then it did
1: I think it's probably right, actually, because I think that's something that I can't say this is only a problem of phase four because I can't remember phases one, two, and three well enough. But I would certainly agree for phase four in here because it's perverse in how it manifests because they're not allowing people to be characters and have opinions. It does mean that the sassy young women they create have no character. So by actually blocking people and saying, we're creating powerful young women who are going to have this characteristic, then they actually turn them into objects because they're nothing more than something to be passed around that is, I don't even know if I dare say it, but as long as the character is woken off, to not offend anybody, then they've done all they need to do. Because that was my problem with America Chavez. She's not a character. She's essentially another version of the book of Vicente, where they just have to find and use the book well enough. So by creating a powerful young female character in both cases, they've created a boring little brick that goes around in its defined little box and can't do anything. Can you think? Can you not see that you've actually defeated your own activism? There, you're trying to do a good thing by creating a strong lead, but in doing so, you've completely created the antithesis. So I, I do think that, that person is right. People can't say anything. They can't do anything. They just have to be correct. But in doing so, have actually ended up being what is, if you actually analyze it, don't look behind the curtain, children. If you actually do look behind the curtain, you see, oh my God, that's almost just as abusive, isn't it? To say that young women can't do anything but just speak the lines they've been given. Isn't that a bit horrible? But it, it just doesn't get seen that way.
0: And you almost run the risk of them just being a collection of slogans with no depth to them. And since there's nobody in the plot actively challenging what they're saying, then you never really get any sense of why they think that or how they got to that conclusion. They just arrive fully formed and they already think this. And they're immediately right because they never get challenged in any meaningful way. That feeds into what we were saying there. At no point does Scott turn around and say, OK, it's great that you want to help all these people, but here's the harsh reality of life here. Here's why this hasn't been solved and here's why we're not going to be able to do that in the way that you're trying to do it and then maybe you get to this point where scott says well i'm a bit of a rich guy now i could be using my celebrity to raise awareness about this sort of stuff or whatever he could be the voice of the downtrodden people that have no homes because of the blip and things like that." that's a perfect slot for someone like Ant-Man to go into because it's, I now of a public forum, I'm the little guy, I stand up for the little guy. Great.
1: He's even more connected to it than that as well when you think about it because he is the person with the chequered past. He's the one that's been to jail. He's the one that does know what it's like to be without, to have to steal, to have to break the law. It actually gives him a chance to show his own capabilities. Yes, he's not actually a great trained an experienced superhero and when he has to play in the superhero field he struggles a bit but when you get him down to the dirt when it gets down to real living and you've not got a home this is the thing he's actually an expert on and he should have been able to step up and show his capability here he should have been able to advise a young person and it isn't even advising a young woman It's actually advising a young person. If you do it right, if you risk it in the script, it's someone in their 40s giving life experience to someone in their teens. And there's no gender politics there. There's no racial politics there or culture politics there. It's purely the natural progression of age. It's one thing I actually liked with Hawkeye, by the way. I don't ever mean to say that Phase 4 was full of nothing. Can you remind me of this? I enjoyed Hawkeye. And they did manage to have that dynamic. They had an older person, happened to be a man, giving advice to a younger person, happened to be a woman. And you never really felt like it was breaching the rules of wo- by having an old white man telling a young person what to do who should have already known. I think they did take that risk and it didn't ruin anything. So even if you wanted to say, can we risk it? You already have you've already seen that it can be okay over there. Try it here. But again, yeah, they didn't.
0: Yeah, and Hawkeye, Clint comes from the position of bitter experience where Kate Mm, doesn't. She comes from that privileged background and she has to learn that. And the trade-off is that Clint learns a bit about being more involved than he has been. And that's the same trade-off here, actually, or it could have been, with Scott learning through... Cassie challenging the way he's currently living his life that he learns that he could be doing things differently but at the same time she learns how she can be doing things differently and they sort of meet in the middle somewhere but they still occupy really? these two different stances on this issue that Twitter thread I was talking about I don't know if I'll be able to find it for the show notes the guy tweets a lot so it's probably buried under thousands of tweets by now. but anyway the point he was making was that from his point of view, the last time he feels like the Marvel characters were actually proper characters was when Joss Whedon was writing them. And let's push aside the Joss Whedon controversy. I was say,
1: perverse as that is, yes.
0: <laughs> but there's no denying that the guy knows how to write character. That's what he's known for. That's why they would bring him in to do things. And when we talked about Justice League, we talked about how he actually made improvements with people like Superman and so on, where Zack Snyder Mm. wasn't interested in doing much with that character. The scene he specifically referenced was, I don't know if you remember it, but in Age of Ultron where Stark and Steve are chopping wood on Hawkeye's farm and they're having an argument. And in that argument, they both clearly occupy different stances on the same issue. And they're never going to meet in the middle on it because they are completely different people with completely different worldviews and they arrive at conclusions in completely different ways. But what they need to do is they need to work together. They need to come to some sort of an agreement in order to be able to take the next step in the narrative of the film. Mm. But in that moment, there is such an impasse because they just cannot agree and they never will. And that's what I was getting at earlier. It does seem like they're shying away from that in lots of things. Like I say, various things you see they have kind of a disagreement about something, but five minutes later it's fine and they're on the same page and they're doing the same thing and it's as if they never had the disagreement at all. It's just one of them has somehow won it. Yeah, Like I say, it's almost that fear of actually turning your characters into something.
1: It is bigger than that as well in a horrible way. I'm never going to feel bad about harping on about Phase 4, by the way, so we're going to get a bit more of it here. This is what bothered me with the Black Widow film. They had to completely rewrite her backstory because the idea that she was this compromised human who had lost her connection to what it means to be human, to do horrible things. She even says in Avengers... I didn't care who I hurt. Now, when you see the Black Widow film in Phase 4, you don't believe that. You believe that, oh, she would never have hurt a little girl. It was just an accident. Oh, but it's okay because the little girl survived. She would never hurt anybody. Black Widow's never killed anybody, you get the impression, from her own film. I mean, except for the entire prison full of prison guards and prisoners. But they're all evil, so that's fine. And
0: none of them have names.
1: Exactly, yeah. There couldn't possibly be a moral issue there. So they want to just try and remove anything that could be in any way signifying that somebody has even the slightest of greyest of characteristic. Our heroes need to be perfect, start perfect, be perfect, End perfect. Otherwise, as you say, there's going to be a problem, and it's either a fear of backlash or, well, I don't know. I can't actually come up with another idea. But yeah, you're right. There is something in the motivation that I believe I saw in phase four. I could be persuaded it was in phase two and three as well, if this guy on Twitter is to be proven right. I'm happy to admit that, but I certainly saw it in phase four. We just can't. No, we just have to do it this one way, and that's all we've got. We are, however, going to produce. An infinite number of films and an infinite number of TV series where you're going to have to watch this one thing play out over (laughs) and over, which is, again, a bit of a madness. Surely you can see that you start off bland and carry on being bland for a lot more. You're going to be annoying your audience. But Hasbro didn't see it when they did that with Dungeons & Dragons. Disney aren't seeing it when they did it with Marvel. So apparently they know how to make money. Yeah, what do I know?
0: We've got all these projects, we don't exactly know when all of them are going to be released, so we need our characters to start and end in the same place. Otherwise it might not make sense what happens in between.
1: Well, maybe that's it. Maybe it's not socio-political. Maybe it's just a complete lack of organisation.
0: The Black Widow example actually particularly annoys me. It's when she's sort of absolved of the guilt of... As you say, killing the little girl. Mm. It's just such a strange idea because one of the big conversations in The Avengers, again, written by Joss Whedon, is about the red and her ledger. And Loki uses that to, well, he thinks he's manipulating her. She's actually manipulating him, which is another great part of the scene. But the idea is he lists a few things that he knows that she's done. Mm. Then you expand on that slightly in Winter Soldier the film, not the TV show, where Nick Fury says Agent Romanov is comfortable with everything. So the implication is killing this little girl, that's just one of dozens of awful things that she's done. And Nick Fury's made her do some of them, most likely. In fact, probably more of them than when she was a Russian agent or whatever she started out
1: as. When she was by herself, certainly, yeah. yeah.
0: Just let her have this dark and checkered past and let her have this blood on her hands that she has to live with. Because the whole thing is when you're getting towards an endgame, she's on a sort of self-imposed redemption arc where she wants to not make up for it, but do better. And what better motivation?
1: The whole thing about the red in your ledger, that's why the red in your ledger is such a beautiful saying, because it starts out being just red is the colour of debt. But then when they make it clear that red is also the colour of blood, and even better, the debt is the blood because she needs to repay the life that she's taken away. When you start to see that play out, which I assume comes from the original comics, so it's well grounded and well thought out in that setup, but when you take that away from her, it's just awful.
0: Yeah. We often talk about Angel, again, another Joss Whedon thing, although he didn't really run the show on Angel. That was yeah. someone else. But imagine if they just revealed later on that Angel had never actually eaten anybody. Yes. <laughs> he thought he did, but he didn't actually do that. It was fine. Yeah, it never actually took the
1: final drop, so it was all fine in the end.
0: That whole show is about his redemption or his attempt at redemption. And okay. they're never shy about the fact that you were one of the worst guys around. Yes, absolutely. And they frequently show you flashbacks where he's doing horrible things. But that doesn't turn you off on as a character.
1: Well, that's why I know I could never get the film I wanted from what they set up with Cassie as an activist. Because one of the things I've said earlier on just this evening is that in act two of this film that I've talked about as a rebellion, Cassie has to do something where she learns horrible consequence. And my example was she does something and gets three people killed. Yeah. Now, that is something that would be defining and motivating for the rest of your life, and it would be a proper origin story for her character. I assume she's going to be a young Avenger, and it would have been a proper origin story for her in that role, but it would have given her that horrible stain on her character. So I know, even seeing it, that they would never do that. But seeing as I bring up the origin stories of the Young Avengers, most of them that we've seen so far have no origin story. They're just awesome. (laughs) That's their origin story. I was awesome as a child, and I'm going to be even more awesome as a Young Avenger. And that is going to be very boring, especially when they're all young geniuses as well. There's going to be nothing to be able to tell them apart. The difference is... And again, to come back to Hawkeye, they did actually set somebody up and they did give them a proper origin story. Kate does actually get a good origin story.
0: Even she arrived with the built-in skills. You know why she has them, I suppose, but she still already has them by the time the show starts.
1: Yeah, she does, but at least they put some effort in the opening credits to tell you that she spent her entire life doing it. Mm. She spent her entire childhood defining that skill set and arguably her later Stories could call back on that and say, You're a bit single focused. You're a bit high purposed here. You're losing yourself and you don't appear to be able to let go of things. And she would have to learn something. Oh, yeah, I spent my entire childhood dedicated to this one task and I've sort of forgotten how to let go. It's enough to build something on. Even if she does, as you say, turn up awesome, there's still something there, certainly more than any of the rest of them have received.
0: I never doubted the fact that she could have those skills and the fact that Hawkeye saved my life and therefore he became my favourite Avenger and then I learned how to do archery because I'm rich and could do those things well indeed she could put her focus in whatever direction she wanted because she's rich even her mother in the show says you're young and rich you yeah. can get away with anything and she knows it that's in itself is an interesting failing really she yeah. will eventually learn that actually I can't get away with everything and it catches up with her mother in that show as well so there's your she lesson yeah. and she learns it the rest of the young Avengers you've got like Riri Williams who arrives already a genius who's built her Iron Man suit
1: no backstory no interesting characteristics she's a amazing young woman who can do everything there's no character
0: there. And there's other Young Avengers. Wanda's kids. don't know if they're going to be there. Oh well, yeah, we don't really
1: know them yet.
0: Yelena, she's going to be in Thunderbolts, probably not Young Avengers. But no. she's had the horrible grueling Black Widow training, so we're okay with that. Or certainly
1: I am. Although it would have been better if they'd have done some other things with it in the Black Widow storyline. But moving on.
0: Maybe it's not controlled by gas or whatever it was. But anyway, back to this film. Scott and Cassie, I think we've gotten a good basis for what they could and should have done with them. Yeah. So let's move on to Hope. This should be a short conversation.
1: Unfortunately, yes. They didn't really do anything at all with poor old Hope. No. She gets to turn up in a few action sequences and be amazing when she's duplicated in this realm of possibility. She's so awesome in her dedication that she doesn't duplicate too much.
0: And doesn't pay attention to her duplicates, more or less. Yeah,
1: she doesn't get distracted by it. The stupid thing about that is, actually, if she'd have been given the chance to be on camera more, I would actually agree. That is her character that they've set up before. She is actually someone who's focused and dedicated and can be single-minded. And they could have done something where that was also maybe, in other cases, a flaw for her. But actually, here, turns out to be a strength. So it's annoying because... It's a good idea, like many other good ideas, that isn't really used, explored or built upon. And then, as you say, short conversation, because that's potentially one of the few scenes I can even remember her in. You have to help me out with the other ones.
0: I guess you get her in amongst the family stuff early on. Cassie has two mothers, in effect, because Mm -hmm. Hope is sort of a mother to her. And you have this weird familial connection that's sprung up since their last appearance that we know nothing about and we're just supposed to accept, where Cassie's calling Hank Grandpa Hank and things like that. Where did this come from? Did either of the two Cassie actresses spend any time on screen with Michael Douglas? It's this weird... Okay, so this is the dynamic now. It'd be different if we actually got to see a bit more of it. You almost feel like you've missed a film in between films because the status quo is not how you remember it.
1: Well, I think you're right. But again, I'll come back to my same argument that I'll bore the audience with for everything it's another thing that could be a good idea that, you say, it doesn't get any treatment. Yeah. Because if they are going to do it, then they could have had chance to explore it by having Cassie trapped with Hank in the Journey to the Centre of the Earth storyline. It wouldn't work in the Rebellion storyline, I don't think. So you have to go to one of the other ones.
0: No, that has to be Scott for that story.
1: Yeah. So if you want to do Journey to the Centre of the Earth, why not have Cassie and her new relative that she's obviously spent time with be trapped together and they have to explore and work things out together and they could refer back to previous time they spent together. Oh yeah, this is like that picnic, but where we had tiny ants, that's a huge great jellyfish in the air. Something better than that, but they could have done. That would have made a perfectly good version of that storyline. But again, no time, no exploration, so not going to happen.
0: Yeah, or you have a circumstance where Hank doesn't really want to be close to her because he's a curmudgeonly old man and he warms up to her, which is a very Disney plot, but it's a Disney film, so why not?
1: It is, yeah, why not? Yeah.
0: That's a journey that could go on because Hank has always been the crutchy old man who doesn't like anybody. So seeing him come around to the possibility of liking someone is a solid arc that you can follow, but with Drifted Away from Hope again, because I really can't remember that much that she did. She starts off the film with the mention of she's using the pim particle to change the world in really positive ways in terms of food production and all this stuff, and it's that sounds really cool. I can't wait for that to never get mentioned again.
1: Well, indeed. In theory, they could have ended up trapped in the quantum realm as one of her experiments. That's where your journey to the centre of the Earth comes from, because She started to go into this whole pim Particle adventure, and pim Particles are now everywhere across the Earth, solving all these problems. And some genius comes along and says, that's excellent, I'm going to have a play with that. Hope has to then look into it, because she doesn't want her technology being abused by some idiot scientist in some backwater laboratory. Unfortunately, they turn up at the laboratory at the point where this genius scientist has just pushed the button that says create plot and screw the world and everybody gets (laughs) sucked down into the quantum realm. And then he's the bad guy in journey to the center of the earth. Maybe they even do a time jump where he's been sucked into this realm and has had, 20 years to get older and create an awful place for them to have to explore and work around and hope is sitting there going oh my god this is actually my fault because i let this idiot through our recruitment program i'm the one that has to solve this so i think hope works perfectly in the journey to the center of the earth plot line because she can be the very source of it but i'm really making up now (laughs) absolutely nothing like this in there
0: no. She's just kind of there sometimes. She spends time with her parents and that's about all she does. She's there to hear Janet's exposition. That's one of the things that she's there for. Absolutely. And there's that whole, again, it's really clunky, the whole, I was in the quantum realm for 30 years. I said, yeah, you never talk about it. Why don't you talk about it? Why don't you talk about it? Please talk about this traumatic thing that happened to you. And said, I just don't want to. And then you find out that she's keeping this really weird secret. In terms of, oh yeah, there's a civilization down there run by a warlord. Maybe tell some of my superhero family that fact in case it becomes a problem. I wasn't overly
1: worried by that. As a simple fact by itself, as long as Janet has done some really horrible things, which of course was never going to happen. But let's say Janet has done some really horrible, traumatic things. And when she gets back into the real world, the first thing her brain does is say, we're never going to think about that again. Do we all agree? Yep. There's a big cupboard. Lock it all away. And so if you make it something about Trauma and getting past that, then yeah, she does not want to talk. But I would like to see her being a lot more stressed when somebody pushes her and she just detonates over somebody for trying to open that door. If you're going to go down the trauma route, it should be a bit horrible for the family members. So again, maybe that's the reason they were never going to do it. So I'm not offended by her not wanting to talk about it, but I don't think they created enough trauma to really explain it. And they certainly ruined it when they had at least two cutaways. Please tell us about this. And she's about to think of something to say to get around it, but the camera cuts away. And you think, he didn't even bother giving it time to look awkward. You just moved on to the next scene. So initially, wasn't too worried. But yes, they just stomp all over it through the rest of the film, I think.
0: Again, in your journey to the centre of the Earth plot, you have her and Hope together and hope seeing what a grim survivalist her mother was when living in the quantum realm because this is what you have to do to survive and i didn't tell you because i didn't want you to look at me like that
1: absolutely yeah that's great plot that's perfectly fine that works really well
0: shame they didn't do it well indeed they had to do something i would have liked them to do something rather than what they did janet just exists to explain the backstory of everything to you I've been here before, I know this thing. And the plot just stops in its tracks Or she just sits and tells you stuff. It happens a few times and it's very awkward when it does happen.
1: Exactly that. It is exposition. There's a couple of points as well where they could be doing stuff and they just give you tropes. The one that bothered me the most, I think, is where we're in this dangerous place. Oh, look, there's an army of marauders up front. They're coming towards us fast with guns and swords. My first thought was... They're old friends. And it's not because I'm a genius. I promise I'm not trying to say how good I am at predicting stuff.
0: Because you've seen a film before.
1: (laughs) Exactly. I've seen that so many times before. Oh, my God. How old do I feel that I've seen that plot? So it feels like all of those points, somebody the editor the director should have gone through all of those and go this has been done a hundred times before let's just cross all of those ones out that have been done that many times before oh look we're starting with a blank page excellent
0: but there's almost a psychology to that as well in terms of if you're writing that scene in a script because you might want your audience to feel clever and there'll be a sizable chunk of the audience that will figure out ah, they're going to know each other they're going to be old friends and then they'll feel really proud of themselves when they've figured it out when it comes true so there is an element of that and it didn't really bother me as such it was just one of those ugh, do we have to watch this 90 second scene when i know exactly how it's going to play out
1: unless you're going to subvert it you think they're going to be friends and then they just turn up and stab hank and it's like oh my god what <laughs> are you gonna do They suddenly have to find life support for him down in the quantum realm and it becomes an actual awful setup. You can do a nice subversion that way. I'll handle
0: this. Oh, she couldn't handle it. Okay. Yeah. It was the other people that weren't her friends. She was mistaken because she could only see them in the distance.
1: Yeah. And then, of course, the people that she goes to that are supposed to be her friends inevitably betray her. What a surprise. Oh, yeah, look, the person that's your ex-lover turns out to be the big betrayer.
0: Yeah, but only kind of because it just happens and then is never really touched on again. Bill Murray turns off for his one scene and then leaves.
1: I mean, yeah, why bother? If you're going to bring Bill Murray in to do something, then he needs to be... Bill Murray needed to be the – we need to be careful here – he needed to be the lieutenant of whoever was the main bad guy in the film, I think, such that he's the person in the middle who's the neutral force. And you're constantly going back and forwards with, is he the betrayer, is he not? So let's say Modoc is the film's bad guy who wanted to see Bill Murray as Modoc's lieutenant, but somebody who's a bit dodgy and could go either way. And then he's in it throughout. And he can even be somebody who facilitates the ending where they do finally persuade him in a scene with Janet to join the good guys and he gives them a horse that they can use for whatever purpose, I've no idea. He was a quick turn up for a quick gag and then lost another idea just used and
0: abused. I don't know how true this is and I haven't researched it extensively but I'm sure I saw somewhere that there was a bunch of leaks and that leak was caused by Bill Murray himself who says, oh yeah, I'm a bad guy. I'm in this Marvel film and I'm a bad guy that caused them to cut his role down because they didn't want people to know too much about it going in. But I'm just sitting there thinking, would that have made any difference if I'd known going in that Bill Murray turns out to be a bad guy? As soon as he turned up, I already suspected. (laughs) He was just a nice bad guy or pretending to be nice bad guy. That was what I assumed. I was just waiting for him to betray them the second he turned up. Maybe it's because I'd heard that, but I feel like there's enough coding in the way that he's behaving for anybody or for lots of people to just sit and think, He's up to something.
1: Yeah, he's suave and slimy. As
0: soon as he turns up when he's actually his Lord Kryler now, and my first thought was, what did you have to do to get that title? Exactly,
1: If that did happen and they were going to do reshoots, actually my idea of him being a grey figure caught between the two is a way of going ahead anyway. He's leaked that he's the bad guy. Well... He turns up as the bad guy, but then he goes back and forwards, as not a bit neutral. The actor saying he's a bad guy doesn't undermine that plot at all. So if you're going to reshoot, yeah, make him this grey figure that you don't know about and you think he's a bad guy. And then people like a bit of a redemption, actually, in the end he gives them the horse and everybody's happy again.
0: Or just make him be a snivelling traitor. He betrays everybody at different points. Yeah, no, maybe. Because it's all about him. He just wants to assure his own continuity, so he'll side with anybody that he thinks can make him live for an extra five minutes. Yeah. I mean, Bill Murray's fine. I don't know if I have bought him as an intense bad guy type figure because he has kind of a goofy persona, usually. And right
1: for Ant-Man, for ant yeah. comedy. He's much better placed for that than what we saw in the existing Modoc character. He's perfect for the comic relief in a sort of a crazy bad guy or bad guy helper.
0: Yeah. Move on to Hank. We don't really have much to say about him either. Michael Douglas was there cashing a paycheck and little else.
1: I mean, I stand by the journey to the center of the earth plot line gives him a lot of good stuff to do. It doesn't have to be with Cassie, it could be with Scott because they have both got that connection to being the person who used to have powers, the person who does have powers, the responsibility. Are you going to go through with it? Hey, when I was doing this, I really didn't do it well, I'd like you to do it better. Loads of different things they could have done.
0: Yeah, your journey at the centre of the Earth plot sounds like it's three groups that converge eventually. Hank and Cassie, Hope and Janet. Scott doesn't really have anybody. I guess you create a character for him to pile around with for a bit.
1: They could have done that happily enough, yeah. There's ways and means of bringing him into it, absolutely. Yeah,
0: it would be fine. But yeah, Hank doesn't really do anything. He discovers an advanced civilization of ants. Oh, yeah. Which is a strange development.
1: Just to bring those ants in at the end to say we can't actually use anything we've set up in the previous hour and a half to resolve this problem. So we're going to have to bring in, I wish my Latin was better so I could have the god in the ant instead of deus ex machina. (laughs) It's not a good enough audience, I'm afraid you're going to have to supply that yourself. But it does come in in that same way. I know they technically seed it at the very start with the super clever ants and the ant farm that's in there.
0: That feels like a reshoot that was slotted in with some ADR over the top of it just because, oh, we forgot to establish this.
1: Yeah. So it's utterly annoying because it's not, in any way part of the plot. It's not part of the rebellion plot at all. It's not part of Kang and Janet at all. It could have been part of Journey to the Centre of the Earth. I could see that happening. Because once you've given Hank that extra responsibility in the plot, then him accidentally loosing some ants down here is his arc. You've got to deal with this. You thought you could create a civilization. Consequences, you know, deal with it. And Cassie has to help him with it. So it's not like the ants couldn't have gone anywhere, but the ants has presented... We just, we have no way to end this properly. So, ants, good, brilliant. (laughs) So annoying. All that means is that throughout, Hank is the comic relief. He's just the guy who occasionally gets to say something that's not really that funny or set up something else that's not really that funny. Even his story with his own wife is just a bit insulting. Oh, by the way, whilst I was down here, I had an affair because I have sexual needs. Oh, do you know what? It's okay because I had sexual needs and I had an affair as well. Wait a minute. You're supposed to have a happy relationship. This was supposed to be a traumatic experience. The neither of you want to talk about that, because I assure you, between men and women, and I assume other combinations that I don't have experience with are probably going to be the same, because guess what? We're all human. People just don't like that casually. Oh yeah, I just cheated on you. didn't mean anything to me. I, did, uh, I didn't I did have to um and about it for two years beforehand. I just thought, screw it, I need sex. I'm going to do it. So he becomes a joke. He doesn't even get to have a proper marriage he doesn't even get to have a celebration of i got my beloved partner back after all this time it's just a throwaway gag about sex so he's the butt of the jokes he's the comic relief he's almost the mascot it's a real shame i assume he got paid loads so he probably doesn't care
0: oh yeah michael douglas won't be bothered he turned up he said a few lines he stood in front of a green screen (laughs) no problem and the hank and janet relationship is something that sort of begs to be explored because they spent 30 years apart and then they're thrust together again. What does that do? It looks like they just picked up where they left off and everything's hunky-dory, but it wouldn't be because they're no. different people now. And the whole idea of, I thought you were dead, so there was someone else for a bit, is a reasonable starting point. And then she says, I thought I was stuck here for the rest of my life. So again, you're effectively dead as far as I was concerned.
1: That's where your journey of the centre of the earth can come in with them, though, because they could be either partners up again for the first time and have to talk about this. So you don't have Cassie and Hank, you have Hank and Janet and they deal with it throughout their journey as they realize they have to rely on each other to survive again And Hank is learning who Janet used to be by seeing her down here. And it's a bit horrifying to him. And she's a bit horrified by showing it to him. They could go down that route where they have to learn it. Or they could have him being the one who's been trying to persuade her to talk about this stuff all the time. And it's provided a massive stress on the relationship because he's trying to get her to face the trauma and she won't do it. And so when they get into the quantum realm, they're forced apart again. And actually coming together and wanting to get back together is something that they both realize when Hank's wandering about with Cassie, spending a lot of time saying, oh, Janet this, Janet that. Oh, I'd really like to get back to Janet. And Janet's saying, oh, yeah, actually, I quite liked having Hank. And I've come back down here and actually was much better up there with Hank. I think I want to get back to that. And eventually they come together, massive hug. Everybody cheers. We love them. (laughs) So they also have a predefined arc going into this film that is completely ignored and turned into a joke like everything else
0: and you could start the film with them not being together even maybe yeah if the trauma's
1: done that yeah totally
0: it turns out we're completely different people and we don't click anymore and she moved out there's so many things that could have done there but instead it's effectively this 30 year time gap just pressed pause and then they unpaused with no consequences it's just really weird to me it is especially since a big chunk of the film is about how scott missed so much of Cassie's life and that created distance between them
1: as I said it's predefined plot it was on the page four you already this is what I mean by when writers and directors come along they seem to think it's either okay to not read the old stuff or they choose to burn what came before because they honestly think their stuff is better both of those two things are offensive and it almost wouldn't matter If Quantumania had been so awesome that you thought, okay, I agree with you. Yep, as a director, you're that good. Fair enough, I don't like what you did with the plot force, but even there, sitting in the seat of my own hatred, I still have to acknowledge that you've got some skills. So I'd have to give it, but they don't. It wasn't good enough to do that.
0: You delivered such a great viewing experience that I didn't even think about it until later on. It could have been it, yeah, but no. You misdirected successfully. Yeah. And we often talk about that with the first Avengers film, about how it disguises its flaws, because they do exist, and there maybe aren't as many of them as there are in, say, this. Those flaws exist, but you're not thinking about them when you're watching it.
1: You're really not, no.
0: Because it's doing what it's doing well, so well, that nothing else really matters. It's so weird that you've got this built-in parallel between Scott and Cassie and Hank and Janet. We've got these two relationships here. Both have lost time, one more than the other, but they have an impact, And what is that impact? And can it be overcome? Maybe in one case it can. Maybe in one case it can't. I don't know. This is character work. This is character development. And they're just not doing it. It makes the whole thing feel empty and disposable because you come away from it thinking, nobody changed in this film. Nobody grew in any meaningful way. It's just something that happened to them for a little while.
1: It's even funnier because the idea of there being these three films mashed together does inevitably bring me to the third film possibility, which is. Kang and Janet and the effects of Kang being around and wanting to get out because what you've just said is of course the foundational principles for the Kang and Janet storyline where you've got the missing time and it's the one that Kang talks about, it's the one that he brings up it's the one that he teases Scott with and if they'd have ditched the rebellion plot and if they'd have ditched the journey to the centre of the Earth plot and focused entirely on Kang then you could still have had the plot because, as you are saying, you've got these parallels and you've got it in missing time and you've got a villain who can provide that time and you could potentially... I'm struggling to put this into an actual two-hour plot, but I'm sure it goes something like a multiverse of madness idea of showing you alternate dimensions, timelines, universes, whatever Marvel calls them. I'm still struggling to figure out if they're all the same thing or all different. (laughs) But the point is, call them a reality. Kang has the ability to show Janet and Scott, or Hank and Scott, or Cassie and whoever, pick the two. He has the ability to go around all four of those. Oh, shame about hope again, poor girl. Anyway, the other four characters have lost time. He has the ability to show all of them a universe, a reality in which they could have something better and tease them with it. And he's trying to get all four of them to commit some act that frees him. And if he can do it by tempting all four of them, or maybe even just one of the four, he angles all four of them and tries to get them to do something that causes a collision in a universe because it creates a nexus event or the opposite of a nexus event or whatever. And he only has to get one of them and eventually one of them tweaks. And then you think, oh my God, I have to go and get the others and say, oh, it's this evil Kang guy. And you have Kang the actor because Jonathan Majors could have pulled this off. He has shown that he's a good actor in numerous things he's done. But even in this, he could be a different secondary character in each of those four realities just turning up just sort of being that persuading character oh i'm a really nice guy i'm trying to get you to pick up the ice cream which i know will butterfly effect into what i want and the first one realizes and then they have to universe jump and save the other one and then they go on and go on and then they fight him in the final universe all three films work i'm now convinced (laughs) that all of these three films do work and that one is based purely on what you just gave me, with the idea of lost time from four characters. Awesome. Where can we get these three films made?
0: It's annoying to see squandered potential. Can we go to those other universities where those films were made? Can Kang show us those? I'll let him yeah. out if he does. Could he can show me all the different possibilities of all these things I want to see? Season five of Enterprise. Let me see that. Yeah. Then we'll get you out of this quantum realm. That's fine. So then what you have is you have a film where the central conflict is choice. Every character is presented with a choice. You can have this life or not, and everybody gets to see what their life would have been like if they hadn't lost that time. Whatever they identify as the point where that time loss began, so for Scott, it's probably when he first went to prison, for example. What would happen if you didn't go to prison? And then he sees himself happily married with Judy Greer, and Cassie's, I don't know, doing something. I don't know what her starting point is, because we don't know enough about her, but this film, we would know more about her. Hope gets to grow up with her parents etc etc there's all these things where i'm going to give you this irresistible choice i'm going to present you with everything that you've ever wanted and you have to say no to it to defeat me
1: it's actually something that's even built and this is the thing that really drives me up the wall because it gives me what i want which is that continuity with the past films because kang would show scott oh look you can have a perfect life oh yeah you can have the wife and the child oh you get to live in this lovely house please don't look too far into the future though because i really don't want you to know about this guy called thanos (laughs) because if you're not there something's going to happen and i don't want you to know that so he tries to hide the bad that's going to happen and all of them can have this all of them can have this setup you can have everything as long as you are willing to accept this horrendous cost. And as you say, they all have to make the choice to either not be selfish or put something aside, make a sacrifice for the greater good. And they would show you their heroism by the fact that they were all prepared to make the greater choice. And some of them can be action scenes. A couple of them could have fights in them because you've still got... The suit with Hank and Janet, that can go that way. And, of course, they've got hope. So you can still have your Marvel fight scenes with some of those, but others can be your scenes that play out with a bit more family in it. Yeah, this could totally work.
0: Yeah, and in the film we got, when Kang presents Janet with the choice to just ignore what he's going to do and go live her life as if she never left... That feeds into the, well, that's happening over there, and I'm not over there, so not my problem. And that could be a really tempting prospect. He is going to lay waste to the multiverse, except from the universe that I'm living in. I don't have to see him do that, so is that okay? Those people in those other universes, they're not my problem, are they? Or are they my problem?
1: Well, make it a bit more palatable than that. There's a certain number of universes, and he can lie, only one of them is going to pay the cost All the other 9 billion universes, infinite universes, they're all going to be fine. Again, it can be a total lie. He doesn't have to be telling the truth. But he just says to her, look, one universe has to be sacrificed for everything else. How many Janets out there are going to be happy because of the decision that you made? Think of that. Total happiness. That's worth the cost, isn't it? Make it sound nice. Make it sound acceptable. So she almost wants to believe it. And then they have to make that choice that they often do. Again, I could come back to Multiverse of Madness if I wanted to. Is the cost of one person's life worth it for everything else? It is a multiverse story. They've layered that into your Doctor Strange story. They've got it in here a bit.
0: Well, they mentioned the multiverse. They don't do anything with it, really.
1: No, exactly. They missed it on the first boat. They could have done it on the second trip.
0: As I'm thinking about it, it's very similar to the season one finale of The Flash, actually, which is when it was good. In fact, when it was at its best, when Thawne presents spoilers for season one finale of The Flash, Thawne presents Barry with the choice to go back in time and save his mother, and therefore that will give him everything well, he wants. Yeah. But then the question he has to wrestle with is, do I want that? Yeah. Is that going to be the best thing for me? Because what he essentially does for the bulk of the episode is goes around and says goodbye to everybody that's in his life at yeah. that point. And it's, well, if you have that life, you don't have this one. Yeah. And who's to say that yeah. one's better? That's ultimately your obvious choice, isn't it? Who's to say which timeline is better? I know I like this one. The hardships that I endured to get to this point are defining and part of life. And that perfect sunshine and rainbows life that you're showing me, that's not real or Maybe it is, but it's not the life that I currently have that I don't want to part with. So that's your choice. Yesterday's Enterprise as well, the next generation episode, Picard wrestles with that. We could send the Enterprise C back to be destroyed by Romulans, but who's to say that the timeline they create will be any better? We know that it is as the viewer, but he doesn't. It's that difficult choice. That's a great realisation to come to. And you can have the characters get there in different ways. You can have Cassie with it. Well, I'm not going to damn other universities just because I want to be happy because I'm already happy, actually. Life's pretty sweet. And Scott could be the one that initially thinks, yeah, no problem, sign me up. But then when he thinks about it, it's, well, then I wouldn't be around to help stop Thanos. I wouldn't have the relationship I have with Cassie now. I wouldn't have... Met hank i wouldn't have met janet etc is the domino effect of all these changes that happen in his life because if he makes this alternate choice that's why road not taken stories are always interesting that's why multiverse stories interest people on a superficial level and a primal level it's the idea of you get to see something that isn't the norm for this setup and you get to see what that's like for a little while all right. and then if they're done well characters can learn from it or they can be challenged by it whatever else and that's just not what happens here yeah no. I don't want to labour this one too much because it is a trailer and trailers are often misleading. But in the trailer, it did seem like that's what Kang was going to do to Scott, at least.
1: It did. That was what they sold us on.
0: Yeah, present him with that choice. And then even in the final film, they touch on the idea of, because Scott seems really annoyed that Kang reneged on their deal. But at the end of it, I'm just thinking, their deal didn't seem that big a thing when it was happening. It was just... I'm essentially going to force you to shrink down and get this thing, otherwise I'll kill your daughter. So the deal is, he does this and they don't kill his daughter? All right.
1: They never really expanded on what it would be like I can give you time back. They didn't show another universe. They didn't tease him with anything. They could have easily played a, here's a universe where you are happy. I can actually make it so this one you're seeing through my crystal ball can be yours. And in the end, there's actually no real reason why Kang has to betray Scott. He does it because he's evil. Don't trust him. The music's playing. You can hear him being evil. It's just a casual betrayal for no reason at all.
0: Yeah, or just have him be genuine as well, because, well, another slight pun, but as far as Kang's concerned, all these people are ants. They're nothing to him.
1: Yeah. I mean, give him the universe. You might take it away from him again in a year's time. He didn't promise that, but just give him his happiness. Yeah, carry on. As you say, it's just pennies to you to do this because you've got that much power. There you go.
0: I can happily leave that universe where you're happy alone. Not a problem. I've got bigger fish to fry. Your tiny little reality is nothing to me.
1: Yeah, and I might want you as an ally again in the future because why not? We work together now. I can manipulate you easily, so I'll I'll keep you around because I might want someone to manipulate again. I think in dimensions.
0: I turn up in five years and say, work with me or I'll take this all away from you. Pretty powerful.
1: Absolutely. He thinks over multiple dimensions and multiple timelines with his planning. I think he should be able to handle that level of strategy.
0: Yeah. Instead, he's not really much of anything.
1: No, that's the annoying thing. So you see Kang Turner and Jonathan Majors does this excellent delivery in the first flashback scene where he says, I'm doing this because I have to. And he actually looks quite sad. He doesn't want to destroy these timelines to destroy these universes to kill these people now again it can be a lie he can be kidding himself he can be absolutely insane we don't need that to be true we just need this character to believe it and jonathan majors delivers you that to make you think this guy is the villain we know he's the villain but he's going to be a villain that we can at least understand. We're not going to agree with him because he's horrible, but at least we can understand him. It makes sense to us that he's doing this and he's prepared to pay this cost. So you get this tease where he's going to be one of the best villains you have ever seen in Marvel. He's going to be like your Thanos. I don't agree with Thanos, but I do understand the whole idea of lack of resources because guess what? Our world is going through a resource problem as it is. It's grounded. It makes sense. I get it. You think you're going to get something that well thought out again, and then you realise he's evil. What else is he doing? No, he's evil. There's nothing else. He's just evil.
0: In the same way that you agree with Killmonger's point of view, but you don't agree with what he did.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So it's a shame. I think Kang was set up really well. I think the act of playing Kang is awesome. I think the script has let him down dreadfully.
0: Yeah, and I like the idea that he sees himself as this necessary cog in a cosmic machine and that it mm. takes a toll on someone it's just a horrible thing to have to be saddled with but he believes that he is they don't go into the detail of why he was exiled but it seems like he does that to absolve the other kings of having to do it which then puts all of that on his shoulders but then where does the he who remains who showed up in loki come into that because they essentially have the same job yeah as far as is described here.
1: Well, we don't even know because it almost sounds like the Council of Kangs was trying to create the perfect timeline. I forget what they call it. What do they call
0: it? The sacred timeline.
1: The sacred timeline. It sounds like the Council of Kangs was trying to create that and it sounds like this Kang was trying to ruin it. But it can't be that because, as you say, it's he who remains that does that. Now, I used to say on a podcasts when something didn't add up that I trust Marvel They've shown me that I can trust them because they usually reveal some extra bit of information that explains it. It doesn't make sense right now because I don't have the big picture. And I have a couple of times in this said, I trust Marvel to resolve that. And in theory, if you'd have presented this to me back then, I would have said the same thing. The fact that all three groups of Kang are all claiming to be the ones that give us the perfect sacred timeline where everything is peace is going to be that two of them are kidding themselves and only one of them has actually managed to do it and the others are just trying to lie or deceive themselves or whatever. But now, I honestly believe it's because the people that wrote this film and directed it didn't watch Loki, had no interest in any of the rest of Phase 4 or or whatever they needed to know. They just kind of threw something on the page. Well, we'll have a Kang that looks like this. Ah, that'd be good. Yeah. What's he going to say? He's going to say he's good. Do we need to put an explanation to that? No, the person that writes the next film can come up with why he thinks he's good. (laughs) We don't need to worry about that. It's going to drive me mad when it inevitably doesn't make sense. And there's going to be infinite YouTube videos pointing out how all of these Kangs should have done something completely different in an earlier film and TV series if they were honestly wanting to get what they said they wanted. That is what I predict. I am not going to win any money on that because nobody would take the bet it's too easy to win. <laughs> but it is disappointing to think that is our
0: future. Yeah, because when this Kang does his PowerPoint presentation, where he shows the graphics that look very similar to what you see in Loki, the splintering timelines, and the stuff he's talking about, how the multiverse was in chaos, it was dying, I stepped in and put it right and fixed it all, that's a condensed version of what He Who Remains is telling you at the end of Loki. Yeah. And I don't think either of them work. Because in Loki, Loki doesn't ask the questions that Loki would ask. Yes. Which means that what you've got is you've just got, you. remains, we'll call him Kang because it's easier. You've got that Kang just telling him stuff and he's sitting there and taking it. The whole time I was watching it, I was just thinking, Loki would not just be sitting here accepting this. He would have question after yeah. question. He would accuse him of lying. He'd be trying to figure out how he can wield that power. That's just the guy he is. Anytime you show him something shiny that can control the universe, he's going to want it because that's Loki for you. Even reformed Loki, he still wants that. In Thor Ragnarok, he's in Odin's vault. He runs past the Tesseract and then he doubles back because he's like, oh yeah, I want that. It's what I had before. I want it again. So both delivery mechanisms of that information don't really work for different reasons. And in this, it just doesn't work because he gives you a quick PowerPoint presentation and then there's no analysis of it that's just what it is
1: I think it comes down to the same thing in the end though that either the writers don't believe they have any duty to marry their stuff up with the rest of the series or as I've said they believe that their character is better than the previous character so they're not even going to bother because Loki has that same problem he's the same as Black Widow he's changed because the plot needs it darling he's the same as Doctor Strange he's changed because the plot needs it darling and it's just so annoying it is the worst crime for me and that's why at Come back to this. As rubbish as that Kang might be, I don't think he's betraying any previous version of himself. Well, he hasn't turned up yet, so he can't. But even <laughs> Ant Man doesn't necessarily betray a previous version of himself. Maybe Hank does. Maybe Hank betrays a previous version of himself because he wasn't just a comic figure in the previous ones. So I can get a little bit of that ultimate betrayal in here if we want it.
0: Hank yeah, had a dry wit before, but he wasn't like he was here. And from a practicality point of view, I can see why they use this Kang to deliver a condensed version of the information that you get in Loki, because from a production point of view, you can assume that more people will be watching your film than will watch your TV show. So therefore, the film has to set up Kang in the same way. Even though for us who've watched Loki, we feel like it's a bit repetitive. We feel like it's a bullet point list of what we've already read. It's the Spark Notes version of what we've already experienced but you can see why they did it for a wider audience here but at the same time them talking about this being the setup for the big bad of phase five this is unmissable if you miss this then you're screwed you'll not know what's going on after this that was complete fiction you could skip this film and miss practically nothing i think i don't think any of this will feed into the rest of the universe in any meaningful way unless the color coding theory is correct
1: I do think, so that's not true, I don't think that at all I hope that it does even then I don't think it's enough to say that the film is a necessity because you could read that tiny bit of information and then appreciate it for the film you're watching. It would only take you a couple of minutes to read that. So you don't need, and because it's not in any of the rest of the film, you do not therefore need to see the film. In fact, you could just watch the piece by itself. It wouldn't quite make sense, but you'd still see there's graffiti on the wall, which usually only turns up when someone's dead. There's people looking at him like he shouldn't be there. Okay. I know about multiple timelines, you wouldn't get the thing about the shopkeeper suddenly knowing his name. So it doesn't quite work. But again, you could read it. So I agree with that you, you don't need to watch this film at all in order to understand because you can do a bit of homework. But if we did have the Kang and Janet film that we talked about, which I can rebrand now as the choices made because you've lost your time plot, then that would be important because it would show Kang as a master of timelines. He's got the power to do it. He's got the technology to do it. He's definitely a big evil because he can skip across four timelines in one film and manipulate everything that's going on in all of them. He's got all these lieutenants. They could have used this to set up phase five and show him as a big deal and make you watch it. Because the other thing as well is if you're playing around in four or five different timelines, the sheer number of Easter eggs you can set up of, oh, look, there's the Hulk over there doing something. And he will do that in the third film of phase five. There's somebody else doing so you know, and it, it would actually be this foundation stone where every film in phase five was in some way teased by one of the four universes in the characters having to make a choice. And that would have been really powerful. Totally didn't get that at all.
0: The thing about films being essential viewing, that has actually never been true where Marvel is concerned. If you watch only The Avengers without seeing any of the previous films, you can follow it easily because it tells you everything you need to know.
1: Oh, well, that makes it a good film.
0: Yeah, but you get more out of it if you've seen the previous things. And every other Marvel film, they have, at best, a loose connection to another one. So a character will show up that's in another film, but they won't necessarily impact the plot in any meaningful way. Civil War, as long as you're okay with the concept of they're superheroes and they might fight each other because they don't agree about something. You can get on with it, etc. But I think Marvel have always just let that hype generate itself because a lot of the audience think yes. they have to see everything. They were just not telling them, no, you don't, before now. Now they are. Now they're saying yeah. You don't have to watch the TV shows, just watch the films and you'll be fine. In fact, you can just watch some of the films and you'll be fine. I think they're starting to cotton on to the fact that people are starting to see behind the curtain, like you said earlier. The idea of, oh no, this isn't this intricately connected. Every episode of this hundred million dollar TV show is essential viewing. So I was okay with that. And then the thing is, in comic books as well, you have comic events where there's multiple characters in there. Thor will turn up for example and he would be like oh yeah I was off fighting ogres in this realm and then I heard about this so I'm here now do you need to read the comic where Thor was fighting those ogres no you don't but if you've read it you might get something more out of it what will probably happen is they'll have their team-up movie where Kang is whichever Kang is is pressing the attack and someone will say who is this guy in be, actually I've met him and then he'll explain what he learned in this film and then you'll know everything you need to know and that'll be it So you can use the fact that the other characters don't know the information that Scott has to do a brief catch-up for anybody in the audience that hasn't seen it. Yeah. So it's not an essential thing. And this Kang is unlikely to return anyway because it seems like he dies at the end of the film.
1: Well, I'd like to leave it open to the possibility that that final scene whereby Scott looks like he's defeated Kang and gotten away and Kang was thrown into the device... I'd like to leave that open to the possibility that maybe that's what Scott thought happened because we've been shown that actually he's in, well, there's a possibility we've been shown he's in an alternate timeline, an alternate dimension. I'm not honestly committed to this. I don't honestly believe that it is this intelligent. They have lost my trust a bit with this. It's just I'd like to leave the door open to that possibility, even if just because I still want to
0: like these films. Yeah, because we go to them every time they appear and you want that two hours to be spent valuably.
1: Well, I'm still the person who is going to see all of the Marvel films. I am no longer the person who is guaranteed to watch all of the TV shows. I have failed to complete two of them now. I didn't mean to miss Ant-Man 2, I've just really gotten confused about it, so I'm not somebody who's missed any of the films on purpose, so I will see all the other films that come out until they lose me. Fire
0: up Disney Plus after this and see if you recognise Minute 31.
1: Oh, maybe. This is what I need to do, that's my homework for next time.
0: And then, at the end of the film, he just becomes your standard MCU big bad anyway, where there's a big fight and it's just a lot of nonsense. The bit I picked up, both times I watched it, that, still really annoys me is he's liberally disintegrating people without even thinking, just waves his arms and people disintegrate and then he goes to fight Scott, Cassie and Hope and doesn't do that.
1: Oh, the plot force is strong with Marvel and has been for a long time. I shall never forget the scene where... Wander is walking over broken glass trying desperately to catch up with Strange and in my head I'm going you can fly (laughs) just fly she won't do it because she has to walk like a zombie through the broken glass because it makes a point because it's a horror film and you have to know that oh my god so they have long given up on realistic power levels and trying to balance the power levels it comes down to what power do they need to have in the moment they have that power level it's really boring it's really annoying I've always hated it always. well.
0: And Kang has that supervillain problem of just having legions of inept guards.
1: Yeah, exactly. He's a walking stereotype <laughs> by the end of it.
0: How many times are people led away by the guards and they trick them and then escape?
1: Your guards are rubbish. Your prisons are rubbish. Everything you use is rubbish. How did you set this up? It's pretty much one of those comedy shows. It's Spaceballs, isn't it? Is that a reference I shouldn't be <laughs> making? It's too old. It's take a comedy film that takes the mickey out of all these And make it the real thing.
0: Do you need a key for this cell? Do you need to know the code? No, you just slam someone's face into it and then it opens. God, don't even. But then later on, you see someone, I think it's Gentura swiping whatever pattern it is as if she's unlocking a smartphone. It opens a cell, so I don't know, it's just one of those.
1: She's already known the password because the guards are so useless, they just give it away to the <laughs> rebels as well.
0: There was that one legitimately funny joke with one of the guards where it's, what's the bridge code? So even then, they don't just automatically know the code. There is some kind of security here. And then William Jackson Harper's telepath character just reads his mind and gets it immediately. That was, a, I thought that was a good gag. I mean, sure,
1: <laughs> why not? Let's let them have something.
0: The film was oddly bereft of gags, which... I didn't expect from an Ant-Man film. I did make the prediction incorrectly that it would be full of the same kind of humour that you would expect from other Marvel movies and other Ant-Man movies, but it really wasn't. There was the odd attempt at a joke. Most of them didn't really work. Paul Rudd's just naturally funny anyway. He makes things that aren't funny somehow funny, just by nature of his ability.
1: Yeah, I think you can see a lot of points where they thought it would be funny. And for some of us, missed the mark. But for other people, it will have worked. I couldn't help but think when Cassie was having her showdown with Modonk, Because he's supposed to be the comic villain. And they must have said, Oh, a guy with a big stupid head. He's so stupid. We can't do anything serious with him. Let's just make him the comic relief. I do kind of understand that. Didn't need to go down that route. But I do understand it. So let's take it where you've gone. And he should be then constantly going through it. Just the butt of all the jokes. And when you get into the end, the mascot arc reveal is just a bit daft. Because he's a bit daft. So if he'd have always been the bad guy mascot. How do I become a better person? Just don't be a dick. You're right. Excellent. If he's just the court jester all the way through, then that's his comedic comic arc. That's his comedic development. That's his growth because he is just a daft character. He just could turn around and be like a Looney Tunes character and go, that's it. And he's just immediately better. That could have been funny, arguably should have been funny, or they aimed at it being funny. But because they didn't build Modoc around that, he's occasionally stupid, but then he's occasionally supposed to be threatening and the big villain. And they keep telling you that he's effectively the Terminator that nobody can defeat. No, he's a comedy sidekick. You can't have both. You cannot be the Terminator and the comedy sidekick. You've got to pick one. Which one do you want it to be? But he bounces backwards and forwards. And so when it comes to the end, I do honestly believe the line don't be a dick could have been funny, but any comedian will tell you, you have to earn your joke, you have to build up to it, you have to lay the groundwork and then get to it, so it fell flat, and it makes me think that there's probably lots of other jokes in there that are the same sort of thing, because you get the jelly creature with the holes is this what it's like to have a hole? it's just a statement, that's not funny but again, you feel like it could have been, if you set up a couple of characters and they are Really innocently making these comments that are effectively sort of schoolboy toilet humor, but they don't realize that they're being that way. They're just too innocent or too naive. And then it comes to the end and you get your big payoff where you make a joke about having a hole. Again, it could be funny because you've made them the comment relief. After anything serious happens, they come on, they say something stupid, they perform their role as Jester well enough. Again, that's their arc, that's their growth, that's their development. They do get it. So I think even that joke could have been funny in the hands of somebody who could do comic delivery. I'd need to see the film to find more examples, but just knowing that I've seen two of them makes me think I think there are more. I think this film could have been a lot funnier, but you'd need to commit to it. You'd need to remove, again, the other two films and leave one of them in there and Commit to that, and then you can build that comic arc all the way through. Lots of the characters have that as well. The guy with the light bulb heads, it seems a bit insulting to say it that way. He has an arc as well that's really simplified. He's the one we should have been crying over because he dies. Spoilers. But who is he? I don't know anything about this guy. He's not part of the rebellion. If you want me to be sad that he's dead, it's exactly the same as the jokes. Commit to the rebel storyline make him this defined character that we cannot be without because we just see him being... I mean, he's literally got a light for a head. He is literally going around inspiring people by showing them the light. He's a walking metaphor. You're (laughs) stuck in darkness. Let me show you the light. Obviously, that is too ridiculous. But nonetheless, you set it up that way. He can be this great inspirational leader that they all are thankful for because he's there helping every single person there's nobody this guy hasn't helped and then at the end he's the cost of your freedom that's the cost you have to pay in order to be free you lose that guy. Was it worth it? Do you know what? We're going to celebrate his life. We're going to be thankful. Uh, big build up. So like Modoc, like Jellyman, the character with the light bulb head, I need to give him a name, but do I? Because he wasn't treated well enough to get a name.
0: He probably has one, but we don't know. it.
1: So if he'd have been built up properly throughout the rebellion storyline, death would have been meaningful. Modoc jokes could have been meaningful. Jelly guy jokes have been meaningful. Everything just lost in this miasma of too many things.
0: The lightbulb guy, I think he looks like the robot from the Lost in Space reboot a little bit.
1: Um, kind of a downplayed, cheaper version, maybe. Yeah, a little
0: bit. I'm not saying it's a direct copy, but close enough. No. There is a couple of jokes in the film that did work for me, though, and most of them were delivered by Paul Rudd, actually. Oh, One of them is in reference to the holes where that jelly creature says to him, how many holes have you got? And then William Jackson Harper comes along and says, he has seven holes, and you see Scott thinking about it. He's like doing the maths in his head before he's... Oh yeah, that's right. I think that's just funny on its own.
1: No, it's no harm in having a few one-liners. The only reason I pick out those other ones with Murdoch and Jellyman is because they are big end-of-arc jokes, you know what I mean? I just pick those ones out. Yeah, there's no harm in having one-liners throughout, yeah, absolutely.
0: It's the way that Paul Rudd chose to play the bit as well, the pause to think about it. Yeah. Before... Confirming. It's probably what a lot of the audience are doing at the same time as well. We're probably sitting there going, yeah, okay. Oh, yeah. Seven, yeah, that makes Wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, which one am I missing? I've got six. Okay. And then... Yeah. You get to where Scott got to. And another bit was near the beginning where he was listening to his own audiobook And it was the, then I was turned into a baby. Am I going to be a baby forever? Am I the Hulk's baby? Again, it's just a funny line delivery from Paul Rudd.
1: Well, that just shows that he was the right choice at the start of the whole Ant-Man arc. Yeah, I don't challenge that at all.
0: And when Kang asks him, are you the Avenger with the hammer? And he says, no, that's Thor. People always mix us up We have the same body type. Again, yeah. just kind of funny on its own. Although it's, it doesn't make sense for Kang to originate it in that way. Unless you are going to lean into the you're nothing to me aspect of it.
1: Yeah, it's the same thing. You need to set it up. You need to get your proper motivations. Characters need to be doing things for real purpose. Yeah. This long-lasting, ongoing, not just in the moment, actually.
0: With Modoc, though, I had almost the same notes that you said, almost word for word, the idea that he's supposed to be the ultimate killing machine. And then he very quickly becomes a joke. What are you doing with this character? You had the animated Patton Oswalt show that I didn't watch. So there is a comedic side to modok that you can have, but it can also be a really horrible, sinister creation, depending what you want to do with them. So it seemed like they just tried to do both and ended up doing neither. I did, absolutely. Yeah, it was just really unsettling, the big, horribly stretched face. It suffers from the fact that Darren Cross was never an engaging villain. So the fact that he's back, I barely even remember that you existed.
1: It's kind of weird because the whole idea of him being changed disproportionately in size across his body is quite a perfect explanation of how he became as disfigured as Modoc is. Because who's to say that changing your size equally across your entire body is easy to do? And he was very much under attack and out of control when he was defeated. So the state that he ends up in actually makes sense from an Ant-Man, a pin particle perspective. Which is kind of crazy, given that I don't think it's anything like his original origin story in the comics. He's a created being.
0: No, it's not. Well, there's various Modocs as well.
1: So when you think about it, oh my God, they've actually managed to create a believable origin story for this character Modoc using pimp particles. I thought that was really clever. But then I immediately got over that because I saw what they did with it. It's a shame.
0: Yeah, it was just a very crazy image. And the thing is, when I think back to the first Ant-Man film, I remember Yellow Jacket, but I don't really remember the Darren Cross character. So what they're trying to do is sell you on this pre-existing relationship. And they have to show you extensive flashbacks in order to catch you up. Because I guess even everybody at Marvel acknowledges that they have always had a villain problem. We've always sucked at this. Yeah. We have rarely delivered an engaging antagonist. It's just not something that we do or even care about, particularly, I guess. Because he is just an afterthought and then he puts on the suit and they fight. I think they were trying to get at something meaningful where it's Cassie that defeats him because he tried to kill her when she was six, as she mentions earlier in the film. But even then, I'm not seeing this connection really. It's there, but I'm not really feeling it.
1: But all of that works if you drop the Terminator story to make him a comic character because he could spend his entire film trying to get the two of them to remember him and the joke is the audience doesn't remember him and guess what Neither the Scott or Cassie that's his big thing and then at the end of it he's trying to go I just want to be remembered this is why I'm like this how am I supposed to not be like them? just don't be a dick oh yeah brilliant off we go they can use all of that even this thing about the audience not remembering him if they make him consistently the joke so it comes back to that same problem
0: and they could even have the terminator thing be part of that joke as in he has this reputation as being this perfect killing machine and then as soon as anybody meets him you're ridiculous they just laugh <laughs> he's never actually killed anybody it's just this rumor that's been spreading they could set it up quite easily Modoc is out there or Modoc's on the prowl Modoc's gonna get you has anyone ever seen him no one alive yes
1: that's how Kang has managed to weaponize that particular disadvantage. Yeah, Kang's that clever. Brilliant.
0: Fine. And then you meet a and <laughs> this this guy guy's nothing. You almost have the pushing his head to keep him away kind of thing. Yes. His death was supposed to be funny. It wasn't especially funny that we're brothers. We are. And I died an Avenger. Yeah, you're in. Yeah, absolutely. And it's the same problem.
1: For the same reasons. Not set up,
0: yeah. I just couldn't get away from how ridiculous he looked, the big face. Apparently on the TV spots, they censored his bare arse. When they showed you the transformation flashback, right. they shroud him in shadow instead of just showing you it. But again, that's supposed to be funny. And I think by that point, I wasn't prepared to laugh much at what the film was giving me. I think it kind of lost me by then. Yeah. Silly. Remember when we saw Iron Man 3 and I thought that Guy Pierce was going to turn out to be Modoc because they did the whole big brain thing when he was doing the live feed from his brain? Right, yeah. And we have other quantum characters, Gentora, who I've already mentioned, the really cool because Cassie says she is, rebel warrior woman. She's not really anything. Oh God, don't even. The telepath guy, he's alright. I like William Jackson Harper from The Good Place and he's some funny lines there. I wish I wasn't a telepath, everyone's disgusting. The jelly monster that's voiced by David Dasmalchian, he's not really anything.
1: It actually comes down to I can say the same thing about all of them that I reckon I've already said about Modoc and the guy with the light bulb for a head. Any of them could have been a big deal if they were used more. And I think. They all needed to be part of the proper committed rebellion storyline where they could all have time to meet Cassie, all impart some sort of wisdom. Even the crazy wisdom from the jelly guy could mean something at the end. He says something that seems ridiculous, but it turns out to be useful. They all needed to spend time with either Scott or Cassie and help them on that journey. So they all mean something. And then, obviously, at the end, you can kill one or two of them off to show that the journey has a cost. And so it's actually quite emotional too but yeah they're all this okay thing where one of them or two of them have something interesting about them but none of them really have a lot interesting about them but yeah, as i say they all needed that dedicated time and the singular rebellion dedicated plotline, and then they all could have been something as it is they're all just a little bit of something not much of anything.
0: That should bring us on to set pieces, even though there's not an organic link to it from what we just said, but we're going with it anyway. I didn't find any of the action stuff in any way memorable in this film. Most Marvel films have some kind of set piece where you can point to it and say, oh, that's that bit where that happens. But I don't feel like this accomplished that in any interesting way. No, but again, we come back
1: to the same issue, I think. If they'd have committed to one of the three films, then they would have had more purpose to fulfill because the big point action set piece at the end should have been the cathartic relief of the rebellion finally overcoming Kang and his soldiers. They should have been being defeated constantly throughout Act One defeated throughout Act 2, Kang's forces just nailing them at every turn. It's just no chance. And then you get this massive final fight scene. Take the ants out. I don't want to see the ants, (laughs) but I want to see something almost like Return of the Jedi, where you've got the big sweeping force and then the heroes doing their individual thing that means the sweeping force can actually win. It's a bit of a formula, but that's why I say I want something like that, where you get your smaller characters all coming together as one unit one scene switch and then of course your heroes get their greater camera on them they get to do more
0: or like in lord of the rings
1: but it's proven that it works because of that it's a way of doing the great host with the important side so why ditch that when it works if you've not got anything better which would don't believe you do. So you, you stick with that. So take the ants out because you don't need them. I mean, you, Marvel likes a formula. Why on earth would they then be the people that drops the formula that's proven to work at the end? It's just madness. So the set piece that we should have seen is the big final battle that should have meant something really big as it is the set piece that i remember is the possibility space but i couldn't enjoy it because i didn't understand it it didn't set me up any rules and it didn't get set up with consequence it could have been something to have lots of ant men ant mans i'm not even sure what the correct grammar on that is but wasps as well i think that should have been the big set piece but it as I say it didn't mean anything it wasn't grounded those are the two that i remember but I only remember them because I didn't think they worked for those reasons.
0: Yeah, the probability storm, I think they called it, was a bit of a...
1: That's it, A weird
0: one. They all united because they wanted to get back to Cassie.
1: This is it. It's just nonsense. Build it up. What's that whole scene about? Start with that scene. What does that scene mean? And then come back to it. Play it throughout. You've got a theme. Build on it. It even doesn't make sense when one of them turns about to be the fast food restaurant employee.
0: Yeah, the Baskin Robbins one.
1: They explicitly state that you multiply at any point where you could make a choice. So that means that in the moment of being in the quantum realm, he made a choice which made him drop undress, find or make a uniform, and he has to make it with materials that he can find around him in this space, and put it on and be that employee.
0: But only one of them did that.
1: But only one of them did that. Now, I know what they wanted. They want the cheap gag where it's like, oh, yeah, his life could have led to this point. But then he wouldn't be in the quantum realm. No. Not only did you not give me a rule set to work by, the one time they give me a rule set and they immediately break it. And I'm sitting there going, oh, my God, that's not (laughs) funny because I can't get away from, you just told me to think this. And now you've broken it. If you wanted me to think something else, all you had to do was not give me a rule. It's a madness.
0: Yeah, in terms of the set pieces, so like I say, I don't really remember any of them other than for bad reasons, such as Kang disintegrating and then seconds later, not disintegrating for no discernible reason. But on a fundamental level, part of the gimmick with Ant-Man is the size changing. And the size changing only works when you understand what size he is relative to other things. Mm. So in the first film, he's against a train set, so that tells you he's really small. Or when he's giant, he's standing next to an airplane or something. It's visual shorthand. You know roughly what size a model train set is, so you can understand that he's really small. But in the quantum realm, we don't know what size anything is. So... When he grows or shrinks, we don't know the difference. And it especially stands out when they have that bit where him and Cassie are both giant and they hug, and he says, I feel like I'm hugging Godzilla, and the background looks exactly the same as it has before. So what you've got is you've got this interesting visual gimmick that you played around with to really good effect in the other two films that you have just removed from this film completely you're not able to play with it in any effective way
1: i don't know that they completely removed it i'm not saying they did it well as you say size is relative so when they're in a fight they still shrunk down and did the jump kick and when they fight in the final battle they have ant-man growing up to be the size of the buildings so they do use it in the fight scenes but the thing of it is because the fight scenes aren't so memorable it doesn't mean anything when you then bring it to those emotional scenes i completely agree with you because you're just seeing scott and cassie that doesn't make any sense at all so i don't think they removed it completely i would just go with they didn't really use it well
0: yeah you're not able to appreciate it i suppose is what i should have said because you don't know what size anything is really this is a completely unfamiliar environment
1: well you do when they're in the quantum realm you assume all the humanoids are the same size as long as they're fighting the guards the other humanoids size is relative it's relative to the person they're fighting when they're smashing a building you know that the humanoids consider the buildings to be building size so i think it is in there it's the same but maybe it's that you've seen that before it's not particularly interesting in some way
0: and there seems to be some rules that they set up that they've forgotten i don't know if you remember in the first film there was a plot point around the fact that you shouldn't change size unless you're wearing the special helmet Mm. because otherwise you'll go nuts and that's what happened to darren and you even have that bit where Scott's in the back of the police car he's about to shrink, but before he does, he sticks his head in the helmet yeah. so that he shrinks with it on. And then in this, they're shrinking down to quantum size, but no one's wearing any protective gear except from Hope, who thinks they put her suit on before she flies in or falls in or whatever they're doing. And then people are constantly growing or shrinking or whatever and opening their helmets as they're going, so they seem to have completely forgotten that. And there was a the big thing about the regulator as well, as in, I've set a limit on this, so that you can only shrink to this size, this relative size. Any smaller than that is too dangerous. And they even did a part in the second film where the regulator was broken a bit, so it was messing with the size that he was shrinking to. There's a scene where he runs around in a school and he looks like a young child, for example. I like these limitations. I like to understand what they can't do as well as what they can do, and they're just thrown that out as well. That's another annoying thing.
1: We've already mentioned that. They've already given up on that. They gave up on that with Doctor Strange and Wonder. In Doctor Strange, she can summon a demon cat head for some reason to solve a problem in the initial fight. It's just a gimmick. And I'm sitting there at the Scarlet Witch going, Fly, damn it, fly. <laughs> it's the very epitome of because the plot needs it, darling. It also combines with we don't need to watch the old Ant-Men films. They're nothing to us. They don't mean anything. We can just go on with what we want to do because we're better than that. It's actually the manifestation of these previous problems we've already discussed being let completely loose. And The people that are doing it think the audience wants to just see a cool thing. And in some cases, I think that's actually reasonable. Where it's actually cool. Where, as you say with Avengers, you're taken out of yourself so well that you don't question it. But this film asks us to question everything. Naive, even one point gives us a rule and then immediately breaks it. So your mind rebels. So it's the same thing coming back to you again and again and again. It's a continuation of the same problems.
0: I found myself asking lots of questions about the size-changing mechanics in this film. Because obviously they shrink down to quantum size. And they seem to be at that relative size forever. So that's their base size. And then... When Scott jumps into the core before the probability storm, he has to shrink down even further. And he shrinks a couple of times as he's going down, but then he comes back and he's the relative size of Kang again. So how is that all happening? And then he goes giant, and again, he'll only go so big, relatively speaking, and then he'll go back to that normal size for the quantum realm. It's just magic with no explanation.
1: Yeah, that's what I mean. It's please don't look at the man behind the curtain. Because when you think about it, yes. When he needs to destroy the city, he doesn't grow to the size of a building. He can grow a lot bigger than that if he want, and he can just kick the entire city over if he wanted to.
0: His normal size is infinitely larger than anything in this realm. So there's infinite possibilities between the size he is in the quantum realm and the size he is in the real world. So he could, in theory, grow to a size where his foot can just stomp on Kang's entire
1: empire. Yeah, he can. That's what I mean. It's very much, do not look at the man behind the curtain. That's the whole problem.
0: That's the thing that Marvel used to be so good at, certainly in the comics as well, where what they do is they establish a character's power set, they establish what they can do, but more importantly, they establish what they can't do. Absolutely. And that's where the challenge comes from. So the first Ant-Man film, you've got the regulator. If that's not on, you're screwed. You shouldn't try and change size without this because I've scientifically figured out that this is the safest way to do this. And make sure you're wearing your helmet. Otherwise, you'll
1: go insane. No, I completely agree. I mean, it's one of the most enjoyable parts of one of the Captain America scenes is where he just jumps out of the plane and the normal human turns around to his commanding officer and goes, he just jumped without a parachute, didn't he? And the commanding officer's like, yes, he did. Everybody just revels in this really tiny power level that Captain America's got. Compared to some of the other people, it's nothing. It's not godlike power. He's not the Hulk. (laughs) But it's so impressive in the context of what has been set up, because you're suddenly thinking, oh my God, if I threw myself out of an airplane, I'm screwed. That is really impressive in that context. You're right, they did set these things up. They've just moved on from it. It's all gone. But if Kevin Feige is unable to perform the duties of overarching editor now, because there's too much For him to do that, and if he doesn't have a series of supporting people who are looking over these things for him, I'm the power level guy, I'm the plot continuity guy, I'm the character's person who makes sure that the characters are all consistent with each other, if he's not going to do it himself and he can't hire those then it is going to go out the window. But this is the thing, I never really know. Is it ignorance or is it arrogance? Is it that they've lost control or is it that they've given up on it because they don't think it's important anymore because it's not the bit that makes the money? Both aren't excusable, but it is interesting.
0: Yeah, because go back to Avengers and then think about how they managed to generate so much intrigue in the fight sequences because of those relative power levels. Mm -hmm. We've got Iron Man fighting Thor here. Is Iron Man any match for him? No, but when he gets supercharged by Thor's lightning, he can hold his own for a little bit, but it's only for a little bit. Thor, he's really strong. Can he fight the Hulk? Let's find out. And so on. it's these relative things, but it's also how the powers work.
1: Well, it is, and I do understand why people didn't like Loki for that same reason. I sort of understood why Loki was depowered for his own series because he needed to play on the same level as Mobius. It kind of understood that. And I I understood that they needed to get the character away from his evil self to his new self because the character in the audience's mind has moved on. It did understand it. But nonetheless, when you're watching the Loki from The Avengers and you can see that he goes toe-to-toe with Thor... He's fine. He can actually fight his brother. He might be the god of mischief. He might be using magic. Maybe ultimately Thor would win. But nonetheless, he holds his own for quite some time. But then you move him into the Loki TV series. He's not as clever as he was. He's not as powerful as he was. He's not the same character. And so even though I kind of understand what they had to do, I do come back to, because the plot needs it, darling, actually the Loki TV series is committing that same crime. I have to admit, I was carried a bit on the wave. They did manage to pull the veil over me, and I was kind of enjoying it for what it was, so I was more forgiving of it. But the more I talk about it, the more I realize it committed the same capital sins that I accuse Multiverse of Madness and Black Widow of, and if I wanted to be consistent, then I should hate the Loki series as well. It's interesting to me then that because I'm an emotional human being, I am being more forgiven and I shouldn't be if I was rational, which is an interesting little introspection that I'd like to go into at some point, but not for this podcast. So we can move on.
0: (laughs) Well, Loki's probably doing that thing that the Avengers did. It's good enough that you're not thinking about it.
1: Yeah, maybe so. Maybe that is it.
0: At the time you're watching it, you're thinking about it now, but not at the time. Yeah. As in its flaws weren't standing out enough for you to dwell on them while you were watching it.
1: Yeah, but maybe I can't watch that series again. Maybe I won't be able to get it out of my mind. Now That would be interesting.
0: Or maybe you revisit it and you think, you know what, yeah, I'm not that bothered. It's fine. I'm (laughs) okay with what they're doing here.
1: Well, we'll see when Series 2 comes out, I guess.
0: Yeah, the next point in the agenda was MCU connections. I think we've covered it. There aren't really any other than Kang will return. The post credit scene gives us Loki and Mobius looking at a version of Kang in some universe... In the 1920s, 1930s, something like that. Sure. I don't know, but yeah. And that's that. And then the Council of Kangs, which is going to be setting up the fact that there's a Council of Kangs. I do like
1: to still keep this door open to the connections for MCU through the stuff I've mentioned of Scott walking down the street and it's a purple street and blah, blah, blah. I still like to think that is a possibility, but the Council of Kangs I'm not very forgiving of. That's something I do struggle with. Three Kangs turn up and they're the leader's, in their funny uniforms. It does open the possibility that an actor as good as Jonathan Majors will get to play three different Kangs, and that will be interesting, and I'm sure it'll be interesting for him. But the idea that the rest of them are all fanboys was just weird, because I was like, hang on, aren't all of them the people who are the best and strongest and most capable in their universe, and yet some of them are total fanboys? That doesn't seem to make sense to me. I understand that some of them are raised up above the others, because that's the way leadership is often, but that whole scene was just so weird. Didn't get it at all.
0: Yeah, it's one of those... Scenes it's thrown in to entice fans of the comics. It's like, oh my God, there's that thing that I recognise and yeah. here it is in live action. And There's all these variations of Kangs. You could pause it and see the differences. The one I noticed on second viewing was there's a weird lizard man Kang. Yeah, sir. The main ones that you see are Rama Tut, who is the pharaoh from the future, who is eventually retconned to be a Kang. There's a bunch of characters that turned up in the comics that later turned out to be a version of Kang. But they weren't originally intended that way. The other ones are mortis, which is far, far future kind. I think I can't remember the ins and outs of some of them, but there's a bunch of them there. And Jonathan Majors having fun, I guess, playing some of them, which is good for him.
1: I hope so.
0: And they may explain this hierarchy thing. I'm not confident that they will, but they might. But I'm lost as to what they're going to do with Kang next. Is it just going to be every couple of films, a version of Kang will turn up and be defeated?
1: That's the danger, yep.
0: What you've got is you've got this infinite collection of disposable villains.
1: I fear that is the way it's going to go, rather than be meaningful. Yes, I think it would just be a throwaway.
0: And the Kang Dynasty episode, episode well, it might as well be, film or films, I don't know if there's plenty into two, that was a rumour, but when they make that slash those films, Dynasty suggests that you're going to get an idea of his heritage, which may involve Reed Richards and so on, because at least some versions of them are a descendant of Reed Richards, and some of them are Doctor Doom as well, I don't know.
1: If they do, I hope they do a better Reed Richards than the one we've seen before, because that was just a disaster.
0: Well, I mean, it was nothing, it could have been anybody.
1: More than it could have been anybody, it was also, hey, I'm one of the most intelligent humans in the universe. However, I'm going to proceed to make a lot of stupid mistakes (laughs) over and over again in a short period of time. It was a complete betrayal of that character. yeah. And I'm not somebody that even likes the Fantastic Four. I still felt betrayed.
0: (laughs) So we have more promises of what will connect next rather than any direct connections in this actual film.
1: Unless they do anything with this ending that shows a different universe. I just so want that. I'm going to keep coming back to it because I really want it. We'll see.
0: You want something meaningful to come out of this mess. I do. (laughs) Hey, well, as a last thing then, we can do this discussion point that came up. There was a video on YouTube by the channel Brown Table That was talking about costumes, specifically the nanotech costumes that everybody seems to have at the moment, as in these magically appearing suits and the masks that just appear or disappear because we need to see the actors' faces. The video was making the point about how it takes a lot away from superhero media when their costumes just magically appear. You said that you watched the video. I was going to recommend it to you. And you said, I've seen that already. The algorithm apparently fed it to you and you, you swallowed it whole. It is, yeah. I'm a subscriber of Brown Table. I like his stuff. What do you think of this nanotech suit thing? Does it bother you in any way? Do you think we are losing something when they can just change instantly? And we're picking on Ant-Man to discuss this because it's the latest Marvel film. Brown Table actually says that Guardians of the Galaxy is the first appearance of it with Peter Quill's mask. It's fine. It's weird space tech. It makes sense there. And it's only a mask. It's not a full costume. But in this, the first thing that happens is Hope presses into her chest and her suit appears And Scott does that later on. What do you think of nanotech suits as a thing that is just everywhere now?
1: I do understand it. It doesn't bother me like it does other people, because I think we've moved on. I think that in the early stages of the superhero career, the superhero films, I wanted it to be a thing because I wanted it to be a challenge. I wanted it to be a problem that people had to deal with. My identity is something that needs to be concealed. Because I'll get into trouble. I'll have extra problems. My family and friends will have problems. They'll become threatened if I don't conceal my identity. But we've moved through civil war, which is the time that we were, in theory, slightly asked to consider the regulation of superheroes, to consider whether people should be identifiable or not. We didn't get an exploration of that. I totally admit that. It was something that was briefly brought up, hinted at what was in the comics, and then not really dealt with. But we've sort of moved through that plot line, and we've moved on to stakes that are much higher up. And we've also been through the massive trauma of half the world vanishing. And I do think that in some cases, where people have a life... I can understand that there's been a lot of coming together and people wouldn't necessarily attack superheroes. They don't need to hide. We don't have the X-Men hiding because of this bigotry against them we don't have any of those problems so i think we've moved beyond the point where superheroes need to hide their identity when it comes to the ones that have saved the world i would still like to see it for those heroes that are fighting at the street level like the daredevil that we're potentially going to get back because he will not be faced by the world supporting him he does need to hide his identify because your average gang member or your average displaced person who no longer has a home because they've been kicked out onto the street and they're becoming more desperate they would still take advantage they would still challenge him so generally for your world saving superheroes i think they've moved beyond it i do hope it stays a thing where they have to hide their identity though at street level your daredevils and such So Hope having it is not a problem for me at all. She's moved on. She has access to the tech. The people that have met Iron Man, So, your Spider Man has access to the tech because they just do it. They've moved beyond it. But there must be more street level people coming back. And I do hope that those people have an actual hood or something (laughs) and a coat they have to put in a bag somewhere. That'd be cool if those street level superheroes still needed to obey that rule.
0: It's not so much about the hiding the identity thing. I think that depends on the character anyway. Hmm. I do think you are taking something away from heroes when they can just snap their fingers and the suit appears because there used to be a lot about the change. How do they do the change? Superman runs to a phone booth and whatever else. Batman goes home, I guess, <laughs> and gets changed in the Batcave. I fully expect at some point well will Batman with a nanotech suit. He presses the button and then it appears on him and then that limitation is gone and he can just immediately become Bruce Wayne by willing it to go away in some way. The Brown Table video made some interesting points. It talked about Iron Man having the nanotech suit introduced in Infinity War. Obviously, I'm okay with that because he is constantly upgrading Every time you see him, he has a new suit, because that's just the way he is. He's refining his idea, he's perfecting his idea. And even then, like I said, with the limitations thing, he's fighting Thanos towards the end of Infinity War, and Thanos is just chipping away at his suit. So by the end of it, he cannot form a full suit anymore, because so much of it is gone. That's a good example of a problem that's associated with that tech that you probably are never really going to see again. You see a bit of it in Spider-Man No Way Home when he's fighting Doc Hawk and he rips the chest plate off, and then the suit moves from his face to the chest again to make another chest plate so he doesn't get stabbed. Stuff like that, that can be quite an interesting use of it, but I think I'll always miss the fact that Spider-Man is to sneak in an alley and get changed quickly before someone sees him. That kind of stuff.
1: Well, that's street level. To me, it is all about the concealing their identity is the most important point. That's why I brought that up, because the Brown Table video made the point that he thought the transformation sequence was important. He said something along the lines of, no, I want to see them changing like they're a magical girl and go through a whole 10-minute sequence. (laughs) He wanted Wonder Woman to spin around and there'd be a flash of light. He wanted that big thing. And I thought, okay, you want that, but I don't honestly believe that the character suffers from not having that. I don't need to see that to appreciate who the character is. I do like the idea of physical limitations that Spider-Man has to go into an any way to change. But that's because he's hiding his identity. It's not because of anything to do with the suit. I do actually completely agree with you. I like to see the limitations of the character, like the suit being knocked off them and they're human inside. They're not actually innately powerful. So the Hulk doesn't need to have the suit. That to me is interesting, but I don't need to see a really long and complicated Transformation sequence for Iron Man. I like the fact that he originally had to put it on, then he got a briefcase. So, first of all, he could only change in the landing of Stark Towers. Then he got a briefcase. Then he got something better. And seeing that development was fine. That's where I wanted to see the character. I don't need to see him having a transformation sequence. I don't need to see Captain America having a transformation sequence. To me, that's irrelevant. It's more important that the person's weaknesses and strengths are well-defined. So as you say, Thanos can knock away your armor, he can take your shield, he can take You'll near off you. That's, that's totally different. For me, it is all about keeping their identity secret. That's why you have to go into the alleyway. So I didn't agree with the roundtable guy on it, but I understood that it was a personal thing that he liked to see the transformation sequence. I totally get that. I don't need it. I just need the identity thing to be considered.
0: And the point you made about in Civil War when T'Challa takes his helmet off it's a more dramatic reveal than if the mask just fades away and there's his face and that's what every character seems to have now the whole i'm gonna have a chat with someone so the mask just immediately disappears so that they can have that conversation you even see during the action sequences where cassie's fighting modok for example and when she's talking to him she takes her mask off it just melts away for a few seconds and then it looks like he's about to shoot her again she puts it back on why are you taking it off in the first place because catherine newton needs to of her face on screen, is the answer.
1: Well, that's just cinema all over. Why did Hugo Weaving not get to wear a helmet in one of the biggest battle scenes in Lord of the Rings? <laughs> he was being charged out by a bajillion orcs. That guy needs a helmet, but we needed to see his face. This is why we are all so pleased when we watched The Mandalorian, and he does not take that helmet off. And the actor was approached about that before he played it and said, look, this is going to be a thing. You're not gonna to get to take the helmet off except at the point where it becomes an actual meaningful plot point. And the actor agreed to it and said, Yeah, I'm all right with that. That's absolutely fine. Or
0: Carl Orban and
1: Dread was another one. I must have seen that, but I can't remember. Does he keep it on then all the time as well?
0: He never takes it off. No. There is a scene where he's getting dressed at the beginning and his face is in shadow. Right. He puts on the helmet and it never comes off after that point.
1: Awesome. So when they do that, it's really meaningful. But your average producer says,
0: no, we need to see their face. It's probably
1: in the contract or this or the other. But no, we don't believe the audience is clever enough to realise that it's the character by her voice. So no, you have to take it off.
0: It became an eye-rolling joke in the Tobey Maguire are Spider-Man movies. Every third act battle, his mask gets torn. So you can see all or yes. most of his face. Yeah, nonsense. Yeah, that's the problem when you have a fully masked character and... You have a famous actor playing them. That's why they came up with the PUD view for Iron Man, because then you can just keep cutting to Stark talking inside the helmet.
1: You know, I didn't even think of it that way. I'd have to go back and watch it now, because I don't remember that being something that bothered me. Maybe it would. I'll have to go back and watch it with that in mind. I can honestly say at the time I didn't notice that problem.
0: I actually think it was a solution to that problem. It was a way of showing his face without him taking his helmet off because like you say in those early Iron Man films he couldn't until he got yes. home he could maybe open the faceplate or rip it off or whatever I have just find the whole nanotech suit thing quite boring it does exist in some other things the brown table video makes reference to Hawkman and Black Adam where it's weird alien mystical tech he has that just looks like the same nanotech stuff you see normally so it doesn't really stand out in any way but in the CW shows the Arrowverse you get it sometimes when supergirl gets her new costume it's some kind of weird nanotech thing whenever she whips her glasses off the suit appears it's ridiculous and to a lesser extent in the flash the tv show back when you were still watching it he would do this thing where he would well he unmasked in front of everybody his identity was only a secret for the first five minutes of when he meets someone but you you would always have this bit where he's about to take the mask off camera cuts away cuts back the mask is off or the cowl is off but that's because the full suit he was kind of built into it so you couldn't just take it on and off. So it was cutting away so that we can film it later where he's wearing the cowl, isn't on suit. And in The Flash, you have the costume inside the ring, which you see in the trailer for the new film as well. He shoots the costume out of the ring and runs into it. That's a really cool suit-up sequence. I get it,
1: but not being maybe connected to the comics. I just don't need it. See when sometimes you send me pictures and you say, oh, the new suit's out for this character. I actually look at it and go, yeah, it's a suit. <laughs> just doesn't mean anything to me, but as I say, maybe because it didn't come up through the comics. So I I do understand the points he made, but I I have to confess, they just really didn't mean anything to me, unless it was to do with protecting your identity. That's the only one that was meaningful. I would actually hate to see all my superheroes getting a magical girl transformation sequence. I'll also say that. That would be too far.
0: The new suit thing, that's a separate issue. They want to sell toys for the new film, so they have to wear different costumes, but... There was nothing wrong with their previous costume. Again, for certain characters, that works fine. Iron Man, constantly upgrading. So he's always going to have new suits. Even with the other Avengers, Stark's bored and makes them new stuff every now and again that he makes them wear.
1: Captain America, many, many decades between his two suits being created and the fashion's changing. That stuff makes sense to me.
0: And they made a plot point out of him going back to his old one. Well, that sort of stuff that's actually in the
1: plot or in the character. Yeah. Now I like to see it. Beyond that, not really going to notice, I'm afraid.
0: His Avengers suit is very like his comic one and it looks kind of crappy. But the whole idea is that Coulson helped design it. So it's kind of a fanboy interpretation of a Captain America costume. And then they get better as they go on. But the World War II suit is probably still my favourite the one that he wears at the end of Winter Soldier as well. It looks like a good cross between being functional and his comic book suit. Sure. Plus, Captain America doesn't strike me as the kind of guy that would really care to upgrade his costume all the time. I feel like he'd just find one he likes and stick with it. Yeah. Because he's just a simple guy. Spider-Man's another problem because he keeps getting new suits every film in the MCU because of, again, merchandising. But... There's really nothing wrong with the first one he had. That's a separate issue. But I understand why that happens. And it's just kind of aggravating. Just to sell toys, which is one of the primary reasons these things exist in the first place. So I think that's us. I think we've covered most of it. Do you have anything you wanted to say about Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania, but didn't get the chance to?
1: I think I've covered my big points, actually. So, yeah, that's good.
0: Comprehensive. Yeah. Well, why don't you give us your final thoughts on this I am happy
1: to have turned a corner. I hope one film doesn't prove anything, but I don't believe that this opening to phase 5 compromised the characters in the same way that I saw in phase 4 I was so angry at the end of Multiverse of Madness, I was so disappointed at the end of Black Widow and I might be disappointed next time I watch Loki it just felt like such a betrayal sometimes did phase 4 and it had other problems as well that we could go into, I actually listed them here in my notes, but I'm not going to bore anybody with them, it's not worth it, but if I just summarise by saying phase 4 was that a disappointment and a hurtful betrayal of some of the characters i was just so pleased to come out of phase five thinking that that i consider to be the most important fully acknowledge it's what i consider to be the most important but that thing appeared to have gone i saw half an hour leading up to kang's reveal being promising i saw The first flashback of Kang, and I saw what Jonathan Majors was capable of, and I was so enthused. But then the rest of the film didn't live up to it. My biggest problem with Quantumania, though, is only that it was just too many films strung together and ended up being none of them, and therefore a bit boring it didn't live up to its promise but that is not anywhere near as bad as some of the travesties that were in phase four for me and it ended on such a promising note that i'm going to try and take forwards which is the idea of somehow scott is no longer in the same universe that he thinks he's in somehow something has changed i don't know if it's a changed timeline i don't know if it's a different universe i don't know if it's a fabrication created by kang But it just felt to me that in that final moment, some writer managed to offer me something intelligent, didn't need to explain it, didn't need to have a character go through exposition, just left me a hint of what could be fundamental to phase five. That's what I want to remember. I want to remember those two positive things. So. Yeah, I didn't love the film. It unfortunately was a bit boring in some of those places and didn't use its characters well enough. But it offered this great promise and it didn't give me a betrayal. So what can I tell you? Somewhere in the middle, a confusing mixed film of emotions.
0: Okay, my final thought is I didn't like this much beyond the first half hour or so. I just wasn't a fan of it. Like I said earlier, or maybe didn't say earlier, I don't know, It was a while ago. I wasn't initially sure why it annoyed me as much as it did. And I do think it's a cumulative effect of just a run of mediocrity from Marvel. People criticise Phase 4 because it wasn't obviously building to anything. And it wasn't building to anything in the sense of, at the end of this, we're going to team up and fight this thing. But I do think it was seeding other things. But lately, I've just been feeling that Marvel doesn't have any direction and i think this is just a another example of that or a very strong example of the lack of direction it just feels like every film is doing something that doesn't really rely on the other films in any meaningful way it's lost that connectedness or it's lost that necessary connectedness well i mean it was never necessary but for me it felt necessary and it's starting to not feel necessary come out of these things and even when i enjoy them i just have no real desire to see them again but in the first couple of phases Phase 1, 2, and 3, I really wanted to see everything a second time, at least. And I've lost count of the many times I've watched The Avengers, and I would go watch it right now, because of how great it is. And I've lost count of the many times I've seen Winter Soldier for the same reason, etc, etc. There's been nothing recently that Marvel have done that I've immediately needed to go rewatch. I always watch them twice before I do a podcast, because that's just the way I do it. And... I feel like as a host I need to have a more broad view of it that I can't get just from a single viewing so that's the suffer for your art perspective I guess I had to watch this again even though I didn't really want to yeah I wasn't a fan of it we've discussed three films it could have been it ends up being a mix of them but also none of them just not super keen on it will I watch it again after this probably not maybe at some point at some point I'll do a massive MCU rewatch, and this'll come along I guess so yeah I'm not Hugely enthusiastic about Phase 5 after this. But we'll see how it goes. We've got Guardians in a couple of months, but will Guardians really be connected to the rest of Phase 5? I think it's going to be a standalone and one-shot adventure that may either be good or bad. And I think the Marvels was delayed because of the early buzz on the quality of this film or people's reaction to the quality of this film. Although I did read, in terms of the ending, apparently an ending that was tested with audience was that Kang escapes and Scott and Hope gets stuck in the quantum realm, but that got changed which explains why it's just so wishy-washy in the actual film itself. It's the, oh, well, I guess we're stuck here, and then Cassie presses a few buttons and the portal opens again. I guess I forgot to mention that earlier, but I did read that somewhere. So, yeah, we can probably attribute some of the flaws to the fact that they're just changing it while they're making it, which is never a good look. But, yeah, that's us. Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. We have certainly had a discussion longer than the film itself, which is thing, we do that it is. I'd like to thank Neil Stenson for the supplied music and if you like what you heard then please do subscribe on Spotify Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts should I dare ask how many stars in the quantum realm verse the listener should give us?
1: Only if you want a really honest answer that isn't qualified in good marketing.
0: Okay, go for it. we we'll yeah,
1: You should give us the number of stars that you think we deserve. If you think we deserve a two, give us two. If you think we deserve a four, give us four. Give us what you honestly think. Is that good?
0: And then leave a comment telling us why. Okay, sure, why not? I would prefer five stars, if deserved, plus a comment to explain why, so... Please do that. Feed the algorithm. The hungry, hungry algorithm. If you want to discuss Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania, Ant-Man in general, or any Marvel thing or anything really, you can catch us on Facebook or Twitter under Neil Before Blog, or leave us a comment on NeilBeforeBlog.co.uk. And as always, we hope you'll join us next time on Neil Before Pot. <laughs>